The affirmative model says trans kids know who they are. Gender identity is innate, immutable. It appears very early in life. Of course, it's also a gender journey and it's fluid and subject to change, but let's leave that aside. Trans kids know who they are. We have plenty of, of evidence of these doctors saying on the record that they don't do any gatekeeping. And so this seems to me to create the ideal conditions in which the state has an obligation to step in and say, if the doctors cannot be trusted, if, if parents cannot trust these doctors to follow the best available evidence and to practice the least invasive and safest method of, of medical intervention for their kids who are truly suffering, then the state has a, has a duty to step in and do it in, in their place. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The only the eyes of the world are upon you. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. WesleyYang.substack.com. Your task will not be an easy one. Ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins. Hi, so I'm here with Leo Sapir, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and who has played a very important role in the in the you know calling attention to the to the absence of real evidence behind pediatric gender care in particular, and has provided some technical assistance, as I understand it, to some of the legislators that are out there pursuing various you know, bans on boys and men in women's sports and other, as well as bans on pediatric gender care. So I want to talk to Lior about the overall landscape that we're facing legislatively and also do something of a deeper dive into some testimony that he offered in Texas. There's a piece he wrote a few months ago where he describes, you know, some of what we are seeing from experts on the other side, a pattern of systematic, public, and easily provable falsehoods being put onto the records and, and, and talk about the, the overall effort to, you know, secure these messers against, you know, judges simply striking them all down. He's had a role in all of this. I believe that there have been, all, you know, all of the pediatric gender bans on child sex changes have have been, or several, six of them have had injunctions placed against them. And we can talk about their legal prospects, what it's going to mean going forward, and and how we're going to work our way out of this conundrum, if we ever will. So, Lior, if you just want to begin sort of giving us an overview of the landscape and then talking about the testimony that you gave in Texas. Sure. So, first of all, Great to be with you again, Leslie. I love your stuff, your podcast, and I'm 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 grateful that you're having me on again. Yeah, I mean we've we've had some pretty interesting developments over the past year or so, even over the past six months. About twenty states have passed some form of restriction on age restrictions on the provision of sex modification drugs and surgeries. Every last one of these laws, as you mentioned earlier, is headed to the courts. ACLU is the is the juggernaut kind of you know, behind the scenes challenging challenging these laws in federal court. And you know we can get to what that means exactly a little later. But you know these laws are 
critics of the laws like to point out that they go farther than what the European countries are doing now, right? Europe, over the last two, three to four years, actually, has done systematic evidence reviews. And by Europe, I mean specifically Sweden, Finland, the UK. Norway seems like it's about to join that, that group. Belgium might follow soon. Netherlands, you know, birthplace of so-called gender-affirming care, might actually join sooner than we think. We don't know, but, but it's possible. But in any case, European countries have done, health authorities have done systematic evidence reviews. They found that the evidence for the benefits is, are very low, very uncertain, and that the risks are significant. And so they have placed serious restrictions, by which I mean, to be eligible for these interventions, kids have to basically adhere to the criteria of the Dutch protocol, which means you know, very early onset of symptoms. When they say early childhood, they mean toddlerhood, right? So the kind of the cross cross-sex behaviors, desires, expressions start very early in life. They persist and intensify into puberty. That's important because research has consistently shown over the last four or five decades that puberty itself is known to resolve feelings of cross-sex behavior, gender confusion, things like that. So the feelings have to persist or intensify into puberty. And the, the kid has to be relatively mentally stable. So if there are any co-occurring psychiatric conditions, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, history of sexual trauma, things like that, these need to be brought under control. They need to be relatively well managed on the theory that, you know, we want to treat kind of the pure form of gender dysphoria. We don't, we, we want to minimize the risk that the gender issues are secondary to, meaning they're being caused by unresolved mental health problems, which, which we know happens. And then finally, in terms of eligibility, you know, these kids have to have a supportive family environment. And that means that, you know, ideally the parents are not just bullied into agreeing with threats of suicide from the clinicians, but that you know, the clinicians do active consultation with the parents and they kind of figure out the, the, the life histories, the family situation at home, you know, because these kids, if they're going to be transitioned, they need to be supported in their transition and the, the, their social environment in which they live needs to be supportive. You know, we, let's set aside whether there's good evidence even for that. The systematic reviews themselves have found that the Dutch protocol rests on a very low quality evidence study. But, but that's what the Europeans are doing. And then setting aside the eligibility, they're also saying that these interventions can only be given in the context of, of, of research. And that's because they've recognized that, that pediatric sex trait modification is really an experimental practice. That's, those are the words of Finland's Council for Choices on Healthcare. Here in the United States, we've been told for the last few years that it's settled science. The new president of the American Medical Association has said that there's no debate, none, when it comes to child sex changes. You know, leading pediatricians have taken to the pages of the New England Journal of Medicine to argue that anybody who criticizes the affirmative model is a science denialist. Never mind that criticism is itself of essence to the scientific process and to medical ethics and and, you know, by and large, the, the medical establishment here, as represented through the medical associations, another problem we can come back to, has marched in lockstep on this issue and has not been willing to, to cede one inch. So, as I said, you know, the, the, the states that have passed these restrictions are going beyond the Europeans. But I think it's important to recognize two things. Number one, there's a good argument to be made that that the, the states that have passed these laws are actually being acting more in the spirit of the findings of the European systematic reviews than the Europeans themselves. And that is, again, because even the supposed gold standard of research in this area, the Dutch study, 
supposedly the most conservative way in which kids can be transitioned, even it has been found to be to suffer from severe methodological problems and to be highly unreliable. And so there really is no reliable evidence that these treatments are superior to any to less invasive alternatives like psychotherapy. And so an argument could be made that the, the, the red states are, are acting in the spirit of the systematic reviews, even more so than the Europeans. But the second thing that I think has to be put on the table, and maybe this kind of is a useful pivot to what happened in Texas, is that I think the justification for state regulation of any profession in any situation is when the profession fails or refuses to regulate itself in the public interest. And this is not unique to medicine. We see examples of this all the time in every profession, in every area. I mean, it seems to me that people kind of saying, you know, legislatures should not practice medicine, politicians should get out of the doctor's office, are carving out a unique exception in the case of, of medicine. Why is beyond me? You know, human beings are human. The fact that they put on a white lab coat does not make them infallible. It does not mean that they're impervious to bad motives, that they're not corruptible by ideology or financial interests or, or reputational desires. Doctors are highly flawed human beings like the rest of us. And groups of doctors can, you know, when you put doctors in a group, that can compound their flaws. So to, to suggest that doctors are uniquely in, incapable of, of making mistakes and therefore that, that this is one area where the state should never intervene strikes me as absurd on its face. Um, not to mention that Democrats themselves have strongly supported, so to speak, legislators practicing medicine. For example, 20 states have passed some kind of restriction on what they call conversion therapy for, for gender identity, by which, of course, they mean any approach that's not automatically affirmative. Uh, in other words, if you are a psychiatrist, psycho a psychotherapist in one of those states, and you want to do proper exploratory therapy, differential diagnosis, exactly the kind of things that the Europeans are now insisting on, that's, according to the AAP, for example, that's at odds with the affirmative approach, right? You're supposed to affirm, affirm, affirm. And so you could be considered a conversion therapist. What is that if not legislatures practicing medicine, in this case, very bad medicine? So the suggestion that that kind of Republicans are uniquely the party of, of interfering in the doctor-patient relationship is also false. But also, I think, as we saw in the case of Texas, we have lots of evidence on the record that American doctors who are in this area of medical practice are not doing even minimal, minimal safeguarding and even minimal gatekeeping. That, and, and this is because of the affirmative model. The affirmative model says trans kids know who they are. Gender identity is innate, immutable. It appears very early in life. Of course, it's also a gender journey and it's fluid and subject to change, but let's, see, let's leave that aside. Trans kids know who they are. We have plenty of, of evidence of these doctors saying on the record that they don't do any gatekeeping. And so this seems to me to create the ideal conditions in which the state has an obligation to step in and say, if the doctors cannot be trusted, if, if parents cannot trust these doctors to follow the best available evidence and to practice the least invasive and safest method of, of medical intervention for their kids who are truly suffering, then the state has a, has a duty to step in and do it in, in their place. Now, the, the state had a role in bringing the opiate crisis to heal. Is that right? I mean, they did intervene legislatively. Yeah, in I mean, you know, the opioid crisis is by no means over, but states passed restrictions on how, when, and, and why doctors could prescribe powerful painkillers. 
I mean, there, there are really interesting parallels between the opioid epidemic and, and the gender medicine issue. You know, in both cases, for example, it started with medical authorities citing very, very low quality studies, claiming that the use of opioids in cancer patients could be scaled at large and that the same type of risk benefit ratio would, would apply to other types of patients, patients who are not, for example, terminally ill. Or, or even patients, more importantly, patients with a history of addiction, right, with, with patterns of addictive behavior. And that, of course, was not, turned out not to be the case. The medical associations got involved and also fueled the opioid epidemic, sometimes for good intentions, sometimes, as in the case of the American Pain Society, because they were influenced by pharma money, big pharma money. So, you know, I mean, there, I think in the case of the opioid epidemic, there was just a, a, a clear villain, and the villain was mm. Purdue Pharma. And it was a villain that the American left loves to hate, right? Big, big, big corporate interests that make money off of, off of healthcare. Here, I, I wouldn't want to argue that there aren't kind of pharma interests involved in gender medicine. Of course there are. It's a big business and it's growing too. And we have some evidence that clinics and hospitals that do the procedures as opposed to the psychotherapy that do the procedures get a net benefit from them. And they also, of course, boost their scores on the corporate equality index and you know, ESG and all that stuff. So there's definitely a lot of institutional self-interest in doing so-called gender-affirming care. But I, I wouldn't argue that the financial motives are primary here. I think that they, they definitely play a role, but I would say that the ideology is by far and away the most important factor. But in any case, there are strong parallels to the opioid epidemic. And, you know, this is another example of how we don't learn our lessons. I mean, the opioid epidemic, epidemic was driven by a concerted marketing campaign that you can trace back to a particular lobby that you can trace back to a particular corporation that had specific interests. Whereas what we are showing, what the trans epidemic shows is that a more diffuse ideological movement can produce similar corrupting effects in a similar sort of way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to claim that the opioid epidemic is kind of traceable in that linear way to Purdue Pharma, right? I mean, there were other things that happened. Just to give you an example, during the 90s, there was a movement to introduce pain as a fifth vital sign. And of course, pain is subjective. You're deferring largely to what the patient tells you, unlike, you know, a heartbeat or blood pressure. So, and, and, you know, there was a, there was a good rationale for that, right? There, there were arguments for and against doing that. So there are all these kind of subtle changes within the field of medicine that created the, the ideal conditions, the perfect storm in which the opioid ec epidemic could happen. And I think to a large extent, the same is true with, with the gender medicine scandal. You know, for example, the corporatization of American medicine is one relevant factor. Because you have, you know, more and more doctors' offices and doctors' clinics that belong to a big corporate structure where doctors face serious risks of, of speaking out or, or defying recognized standards and so on and so forth. And it's easy to fire doctors if they work in a hospital that employs a thousand of them. But if, there's, if it's a clinic that employs three of them, they're much harder to fire, right? So that's just one very small example. You know, one could give many, many others. But certainly a, a big issue that you and I have discussed before is the way in which kind of these medical rationales and medical procedures very quickly got entangled with a broader argument about minority rights, civil rights, which in turn was made possible by the development of this American civil rights state since the 1960s. 
in ways that the founders of that of the civil rights state, right, those who laid the foundations in Congress and the courts, would never have envisioned. And in fact, some of them probably would have been appalled by. So all of these factors converged to produce an, an epidemic that is that is very quickly went out of control and that is proving very hard to rein in. The the powers that were first introduced in order to end Jim Crow are now being used, have turned into a Leviathan that are now being used to withhold information about a child's transition in school from their own parents. Right. Right. And this that is... You- yeah, and, and in that, you can absolutely trace a, a linear kind of trajectory from, from one to the other. In fact, I've done that. that that's what I did for my, and, for my doctoral work. So this, and this is a turn in, this is the cunning of history. Okay. And, and it's, a very, it's a very devious one because civil rights law and the civil rights state are being used to attack one of the core principles derived from the Equal Protection Clause, right, right. Uh, of, of parental rights. And so it's linear, but it's also extraordinarily sinuous and twisted. And it's taken us right. to a place that no one who initiated those laws would have anticipated. And that sensible people, I think, ought to be able to recognize is is an obscenity. But there, but there is a but there is there is a political party, and there is a, a significant part of our educational establishment that stands behind it, even in the face of, you know, authoritative guidance by the first transgender president of U.S. Path, the affiliate of W. Path, who who wrote an amicus brief um, in a case concerning secret social transition. Citing chapter and verse from WPATH's own standards of care, indicating that social transition is not—it's—it's a, it's a serious psychological intervention, and it's not one that can work without parental participation. And so, to hide this information from parents is inevitably to do something that is going to fail therapeutically and do harm. And that was her testimony. It was from an authoritative source, citing authoritative sources. And yet American politicians and American educators, you know, openly, o- openly pursue regulations that don't allow teachers to do anything else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think this speaks to a much broader problem that, again, I think we may have discussed in the previous podcast, but not, not extensively. And that is the unique features of the American political system, as opposed to kind of the European parliamentary systems. Um, American politics is fragmented by design. And, you know, in the 1960s, we all of a sudden got this new understanding of the relationship between the citizen and the state in which <clears throat> a growing number of demands was placed on government to do things that it was long considered outside of the purview of government to do. You know, environmentalism, consumer protection, you know, all uh, to, to supply to, to be active in, in, the, in the supply to citizens of quality of life and not just the conditions in which they can pursue happiness. So healthcare and education spending and all these things, and you know, that's been beneficial in many ways, but it's also ha- had a lot of distortive effects on civil society. And one of the most important things to understand about the American political system is because it is so fragmented. And by fragmented, I mean both in terms of separation of powers, checks and balances, but also in the sense of federalism, 
because power is so fragmented, it takes a great deal of coordination to get anything done. And that really kind of leaves a lot of room for collective action problems, by which I mean where you have a, a diffuse public that is either apathetic or, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, can't or won't take action to achieve some public good. Um, and you have these small institutional, usually private actors, they could also be interest groups, who come into existence in order to address these public, these collective action problems, but who often end up taking very extreme positions on issues, positions that are way out of whack with what the, the average American would support if, if the average American knew what was going on, which in most cases he or she doesn't. And so our political system has all of these veto points. You know, the classic example, of course, being the, the courts, right? If you don't like a law, you can challenge it in court. And America, the American tradition of judicial review is much stronger than European traditions. Nowadays, you, can, you know, the bureaucratic process is another, the administrative process is another venue in which organized interest groups can interject into the policy process, impose their preferences against a public that is apathetic, that has no idea what's going on. Most people have no idea what notice and comment rulemaking is. They have no idea how these things work. So, you know, a great deal of our policies of the laws under which we live are de facto made by these interest groups. The interest groups can, can be institutional interest groups. They can represent big pharma. They can represent lawyers. They can represent industries. But they could also be, so to speak, public interest groups, which is a technical term. Um, it's usually a term that people who like that group will apply to it, whereas people who don't like the group will call it a special interest group. So, for example, if you are pro-gun control, you're likely to call the NRA a special interest group. If you are against gun control, you're likely to call it a public interest group. But in any case, these public interest groups have a tremendous amount of power and influence over the political and policy process, far more than they would have in any other country with that has a centralized kind of streamlined system of government. And so in the case of trans medicine, trans policies, you know, the ACLU has played a, a massive role in shaping both the public debate and the public policy on medicine, sports, prisons, all these types of, of, of issues. And the ACLU takes positions that are highly unpopular. Of course, it, it frames them when it speaks to the public, it frames them in a way that, that makes it kind of more amenable to mainstream liberals. But, but if you actually look at the policies, they're highly unpopular. But, but the point is that nobody elects the ACLU, right? Democrats and Republicans have to face voters at least once every two years, sometimes every four years, at least, right? The ACLU never has to face voters. It's accountable only to its own funders. And those funders are increasingly a small number of deep pocket foundations, individuals, or corporations that give money. Um, and often these people either don't know what's going on or they're, they, they are themselves highly ideological and out of tune with what, what most Americans agree on. And so that's the first problem is that the ACLU, there's no mechanism of accountability between these interest groups and the general public in a way that there is with political parties and the general public. The second problem is that these interest groups almost by definition are going to get more and more extreme over time, right? Because they usually they're founded for a certain purpose. They have a strong sense of mission and that sense of mission tends to attract people who are, are, are ideologically aligned with that mission. So if it's the ACLU, you know, first it was civil liberties, then it was civil rights. Now it's, you know, what you might call what you have called successor ideology. 
if it's environmentalism, who's going to go work at the, you know, at the environmental defense fund? Who's going to go work at, at the, at, at all these organizations, the Sierra Club? Environmentalists, people who are very, very gung ho about environmentalism. And importantly, people who are willing to impose very costly policies on the public because the kind of trade-offs that they're willing to accept are much more extreme than the kind of trade-offs that the average citizen would accept. So these groups, the ACLU, for example, will attract young, very ideological, very woke lawyers, people like Chase Strangio, to its ranks and promote them. And so gradually over time, these groups tend to become more and more extreme in their positions. And because of the way in which the American political system gives them so much power and so much leverage over the policy process, we end up with the politics of radical policymaking. So it's not that other countries don't have similar problems, but here in the United States, because of how our system of government works, these problems tend to be much more extreme and much more intractable. So... This sense of a government that is outside of democratic control produces a kind of perennial potential for a populist politics. And so, you know, the term the swamp sort of, you know, represents a kind of untutored layman's sense that there is that there is an enormous conjuries of special interests that run Mm -hmm. the country and that their votes for the most part are, you know, are are, are going to be impotent in the face of that 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 collection of organized interest and power and and donor money um, right. and 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 thus you know the the appetite for somebody who will claim to be in a position to drain the swamp but this but the swamp may and prove to be undrainable and, and, I, and I, I would always bet my money on the swamp and and so is the only thing that we can hope for is a properly aligned a better swamp sort of yeah. we're speaking at a we're speaking at a political science level not not about this in particular but it but, but you can right. see how it applies to the gender issue yeah and because I we mean, have the, the Manhattan Institute and right. and we have state legislatures and so they're mm-hmm. but they're up against <laughs> you know they they are David up against a Goliath right. So the situation right now, 20 states have, you know, you, you hear this figure bandied about hundreds of anti-trans laws as they're presented in different guises, and most of them are being enjoined, most of them are being struck down. What is your sense of the fate of these things? And, and, and for the most part, the, the laws on child sex modification, they're they're different, but they pretty much are all sort of banning it until 18. Is that the, the basic, you know, you can't have hormones yeah. and surgeries before then? Right. So these laws ban puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries before the age of 18. I should mention that, interestingly, the provisions on surgeries are usually left unchallenged, or at least the courts don't strike them down, don't, ban- don't block them. Yeah. That, that speaks to the politics of of right. the surgery question, right? That that Democrats are and 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 interest groups like the ACLU are are, are very unwilling to to kind of take strong positions to defend surgeries because they realize they're unpopular. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to your question. Yeah, many yeah. of them claim they're not happening in the first place, and right. then evidence is presented <laughs> that they are indeed right. happening. And of course, we know that in their own private councils and often their public councils, they are advocates of these things happening and right. uh, for the expansion of them. And yet, they cannot go before a legislature or a court and say these things have to be defended, despite the fact that WPATH, after you know, in their in their most recent standards of care, they 
issued a draft saying that we're going to lower the ages of to surgery, I think, to 16 and to hormones to 14. And that that itself was an extremely aggressive act. But but a few days before the the WPATH conference, they actually they pulled those drafts and they ended up issuing a standards of care that had no age limits at all. So you can you can you can do surgery according to their standards. An organization that presents itself as the gold standard of transgender healthcare to you can remove the testicles of someone of any age. Yeah, I I, I think phalloplasty they said only all over the age of 18. But you're right, they removed the, the age minimums. I think the real reason for that was to shield doctors from legal liability. In other words, doctors who, who want to do these procedures and can claim, well, these are the standards of care um, and there's no age minimum. So what do you want from me, right? But look, I mean, I, I think one of the odd points about the surgery question is that, you know, when people on the other side say uh, are willing to acknowledge that surgeries happen. They say they're happening and, and that's good because these are medically necessary procedures. Well, then why aren't you defending them? Hmm. If a double mastectomy for a 14 year old girl is medically necessary, if it's going to prevent her from killing herself, why are you, a, why are you depriving 14 year old girls of medically necessary care by, by abandoning them in litigation? You should be, you should be defending that with every, with every last breath, but of course they don't. Which shows, you know, I, if I'm going to be charitable, that shows that they, they're making a political compromise here. If I'm going to be less charitable, I think it shows that they are secretly probably aware that there really is no good evidence for these procedures. But let's leave that aside. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry, what was the question, Wesley? What's the, 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 the overview? There have been how many bans have been passed? Right. And, right. And right. So, you know, there's 20 of these laws. Enjoined. Well, not necessarily. So, okay. so, yeah. So the lawsuits are filed very, usually they're filed very quickly after the law is passed. Mm -hmm. But in order to bring a lawsuit, you have to have a plaintiff with standing. Yeah. And, and the standing requires that the plaintiff have, have a tangible, immediately affected interest in the outcome of the case. And some of these laws delay the, 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 the starting date of enforcement. In some cases, I think wisely into the into the future, you know, six months from now, three months from now, whatever, in which case you can't really file legal proceedings until the law goes into effect. So we've seen some preliminary injunctions being issued. We're going to see more as the, these laws start to go into effect. And I think that we're, if I had to bet, I would say that we're probably going to lose every single preliminary injunction hearing. And by the way, I just want to say, at, on some level, I don't fault federal judges for that. And the reason I don't fault them is because, again, as a kind of a political scientist who, who thinks about institutions um, and not just actors, not just individuals, not just ideas, but institutions, the judicial process is uniquely incapable of making sense of complicated medical and scientific issues. Uniquely meaning among all the other branches of government, right, the bureaucracy, if you want to consider that the fourth branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch, judges are in the least position to make sense of these of these issues. And that's very counterintuitive, right? Because we think of the lawsuit as an adversarial contest in which, you know, it's, it's maybe the only venue, political venue, in which critics of gender medicine can give a full-throated kind of articulation of their position and all of the evidence that they have in their arguments and so on and so forth. So 
we usually think about the, the judicial venue as, as the last place in which kind of rational evidence-based arguments about po- public policy can be made. But, but if you understand how courts work, that's not at all the case. Judges have extremely busy schedules. They're not just looking at one case for six months. They're looking at many, many, many cases, and they have no choice but to rely on the plaintiffs, both sides of the lawsuit, to supply them with all the relevant information. They're also bound to to issue decisions based on the facts presented by the parties because of norms having to do with judicial independence, right? If a judge could intervene and say, well, I'm going to bring my own knowledge, my own understanding of a particular issue to, to bear here, that would compromise the judicial independence that we think is so necessary for the dispensation of, of, of justice by the courts. So judges, for a number of reasons, are the captive audience of the parties. And that means that judges only understand an issue as well as the parties present it, right? Now, think about the parties in these lawsuits. On the one hand, you have the ACLU that has been developing institutional expertise on this question for the last eight, nine years. They have doctors who who work with them regularly. They have lawyers who focus on nothing but this issue. And so they have built up very clever arguments, and I can give a few examples of those in a minute, but they have built up very clever arguments, very clever justifications for for issuing these, these injunctions. Whereas on the other side, you look at the states, you know, these laws are defended by the attorney general, the solicitor general, and so forth. And these guys have maybe two weeks to prepare. They go from knowing close to nothing about gender medicine maybe what they read in the newspapers, to having to do cross-examination and deposition of Jack Turbin in two weeks. They can be brilliant and highly motivated and have, you know, and, and work 16, 17 hours a day. There's no way they will have anything like the level of preparation the ACLU lawyers have. And that's not because of some nefarious forces working behind the scene. That's a structural limitation of using litigation, using courts to resolve these policy debates, right? So so again, take a step back. You have a judge who has no understanding of this issue, who's being presented with two sides, one of whom has the entire medical establishment lined up behind them, the ACLU and all the medical associations, and who has had eight years to develop institutional expertise on this question. And on the other side, you have a bunch of states that you know bring forth lawyers that have two weeks, three weeks to work on these preliminary injunction hearings. And by the way, those lawyers are also working on a lot of other cases, right? So it's not like they're devoting every minute of every day to working on this particular issue. So to me, it would be shocking if we got even a single preliminary injunction where the judge sided with the state. It would really be shocking. It would take a, a, a judge who has been really immersed in this issue, who has you know, read... I mean, just to give you an example, like in Indiana, the judge received about 3,000 pages of expert mm. testimony. You know, if you are working on multiple cases at once and you have to do all these hearings and so on and so forth, reading through all that material would take you months. So again, it would be, it would shock me if we won a single one of these preliminary injunction hearings. And that, again, is a structural limitation of, of courts. And if you add to that another relevant fact, which is that Judges, especially in the wake of the civil rights revolution and the war in court, the heroics of the war in court that, you know, kind of were anti-majoritarian in, a, in, the, in the 
most important and best possible way, right? Brown versus Board of Education and so on and so forth. Those heroics really left a kind of legacy, an imprint on the legal profession that came to see itself as the savior of democracy, right? Lawyers, especially lawyers working on civil liberties and civil rights, see themselves sometimes ju justifiably, sometimes not, as kind of the last best hope of, of liberal democracy, as the only people who can save liberal democracy against its own worst impulses. And judges come from that, you know, I, I, I want to say hubristic mindset. They come from the elite law schools where, where lawyers are trained to think about the, the profession in that way. And so when, when judges are told that this is a civil rights issue, and they're given the analogy to Jim Crow and to kind of landmark Supreme Court decisions on women's rights and gay rights, they're likely to say, well, here I am. I'm going to be judged by history. I'm on the, on the edge of uh, very important decisions. You know, this is our generation's Brown versus Board of Education. I want to be judged well by elite law professors at places like Harvard and Yale. I don't want them to write law review articles about me saying that I'm on the wrong side of history. So, you know, they're already inclined to vote with the ACLU on this issue. So you've given a reason why you're going to lose all of the injunctions. <laughs> Is that reason not the same reason why you're going to lose all the cases in, in the long run? Yeah. So, no, because once you get, so the preliminary injunction hearing is, so for, for any of your listeners who don't know, a, a preliminary injunction, I'm, I'm just going to call it a PI for short, preliminary injunction. Yeah. It's basically an emergency measure. I remember when I was in grad school reading, I, I, I asked the question once, like, how common are these things, right? I mean, because if it's an extraordinary, it's supposed to be like an extraordinary judicial remedy given in very unusual circumstances, because essentially you have judges stepping into the political process and saying, you know, we're going to short circuit the policy process on, a, on the basis of a very short hearing where we have very little time to consider the evidence. So it's supposed to be an extreme measure that's used very sparingly. I remember reading a few law review articles that basically said, no, no, this happens all the time. So I couldn't give you statistics about that, but, but these are becoming, or these have become common tools. And basically the, the, the idea is that you have a plaintiff who says some government policy could be an executive order, it could be a law, is, is claiming that this law or this regulation is going to harm me in a way that's, that's irreparable. I can never get back what I lose. And, and the, the plaintiff comes to the court and says, can you please block this law from going into place and kind of freeze the situation of the two parties, the state on the one hand and the individual plaintiff on the other, freeze the situation of the two parties in place pending a full trial on the merits where we can all you know, give our best possible expert testimonies and, and, and arguments and all that stuff. And of course, a trial like that takes can take years. So, so a court in these circumstances will say, you know, if you can show that you're going to be harmed irreparably, and you can show that there's no other remedy in law, there's no other legal measure that you can take other than this preliminary injunction, because it's an extreme measure. And if you, if you can show those two things, then you don't have to win on the merits. All you have to show is that you are likely to succeed on the merits, right? So the bar, the argumentative threshold is much lower than in a regular trial on the merits. 
And that shapes a lot of how these lawsuits work because, you know, just to give you an example, in the Title IX cases, the, the transgender students bringing lawsuits against, against their school districts or school boards, they had to explain why a school board's decision to say that kids have to use the bathroom that's consistent with their sex rather than their gender identity is unconstitutional or in violation of Title IX. And the problem is that if you look at the Obama administration's definition of what gender identity is, it relies completely from start to finish on stereotypes. Gender identity is the expression of gender stereotypes. That's how the Obama administration defined it. Not surprisingly, because that's pretty much the only way to define gender identity is, is in terms of gender stereotypes. But the problem is that the theory, the legal theory that the ACLU and the Transgender Law Center and all these organizations were using to try to challenge these school policies was the theory that Title IX and the Constitution, in prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex, also prohibit discrimination on the basis of stereotyping. So there was an obvious, clear contradiction within the legal argument being presented by the plaintiffs. And you might ask, how is it that a court didn't really look deeply into this and, and figure out that there's a problem here? Well, part of the answer, I would argue, is because they were using a much lower threshold of argument, right? That, that the plaintiffs only had to show that they were likely to succeed on the merit, not that they actually succeed on the merit of their legal claims. So that's what a preliminary injunction is. And it's important to understand that as we you know, evaluate these decisions coming out of the courts. Because these are not federal judges who have spent, you know, months and months and months immersing themselves in the medical literature and finally coming to a decision that, yes, in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics and WPATH have it right and the state of Tennessee has it wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. But once these trials go into all their proceedings and all the motions, and of course, that can take several years, you know, think of the example of the Alabama lawsuit has been going on for several years. Once that happens, you can get depositions, you can do cross-examination, you know, you can bring in law firms that, that have specialty, that, that specialize in this area of, of medicine to help the attorney general. So like it's, it's, you get a lot higher chances of, of success there. Now, there is one judge that, that decided the case on the merits. So it didn't go on for years or it, 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 it went on for a while. But uh, that was, that's Alabama or that's, that's Arkansas? Arkansas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Judge Moody in Arkansas. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I haven't analyzed this case in depth yet, but I can give just a few preliminary reflections. One of the biggest problems, and this appears in the Arkansas lawsuit, one of the biggest problems that states face on this issue is finding expert witnesses who will be persuasive to judges. And there's a number of barriers there. The first barrier is that, frankly, there are very few doctors who are willing to speak on the record in favor of these laws, not because they don't agree with them. We know because we get contacted by these doctors all the time. And by we, I mean, you know, we at the Manhattan Institute, organizations like Do No Harm, the Society for Evidence-Based Medicine, and so on and so forth. And the number of doctors who have been reaching out to us has been growing exponentially, telling us how, how shocked and, and appalled they are. But what they also say is, if I speak out against this, I'm going to lose my job or at minimum, my, my professional reputation, my standing among my peers, and I just can't afford to do that. And, you know, I, I understand that. I, I, I wish doctors had a little bit more courage, but I, I understand that. Um, but for a doctor to get involved in a lawsuit, 
exposes them to a huge amount of personal and professional risk and also means that, you know, they can, a lot of embarrassing things about their past can be discovered, right? So we all have skeletons in our closet. So that's one reason why it's been very hard for the states to find good expert witnesses. The other reason is that the ACLU, and if you remember, now I'm discharging a debt that I have to you because I, I mentioned earlier how I'm going to give an example of how the ACLU's kind of built up ex- institutional expertise has, has, has really shaped how these lawsuits pan out. The ACLU has become very effective at making a no true Scotsman argument or, or fallacy, logical fallacy. Essentially, what it's told the courts is, yes, it's appropriate for judges to rely on expert witnesses because judges are not doctors. They're not experts on this area. Mm. But then that raises the question, who counts as an expert? Mm. And the ACLU has been very effective at persuading judges that an expert is, by definition, only someone who actually prescribes puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to minors. Mm. Mm. Now, you know, this this type of argument is intuitive and, and, you know, it's appealing on the surface. But if you give it two seconds of thought, you easily see why it's a logical fallacy. Because by definition, if you think that puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones are unethical and medically unnecessary treatments, you are not going to prescribe them. Mm. Right? Number one. Number two, the question is not whether you have in personally prescribe these treatments. The question is whether they're evidence-based treatments. Mm, right. That's a very different question. And that requires somebody with expertise in evidence-based medicine. Mm. And most doctors, I would venture to say, are not experts in evidence-based medicine. Many law school med, med schools don't teach the principles of EBM. I've had doctors reach out to me say, Lior, I just want you to let you know, I never, and I went through medical school. I went through a good medical school. They never really taught us to read medical research, mm. research methods and things like that to understand problems of bias, selection bias and methodological weaknesses, controlling for confounding factors and so on and so forth. So ideally, it's not an individual doctor who actually pr- provides these treatments that you want to ask. It's an expert in evidence-based medicine mm-hmm. now, who, may, who may incidentally be a doctor, but doesn't have to be. Yeah. And and then the third thing to consider here is that, you know, the, the doctors who are actively involved in prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones have a vested interest in the, in the courts agreeing with, with these treatments. Mm-hmm. They are not neutral, dispassionate experts who are looking and assessing, looking at the whole body of evidence and trying to assess it with, you know, with, with neutrality. They have vested financial, personal, reputational interest in making sure that the courts strike down these laws. Whereas somebody who doesn't treat kids who identify as trans, certainly who doesn't prescribe hormones to them, I'm not going to say that that person doesn't have a personal interest, but the, 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 the strength of that interest is much, much weaker than it would be in the case of somebody like Jack Turbin, right? So... So then, you know, the, the question is, why can't judges see through this? Yes. And, yeah. And that has to do with traditions of judicial, of, of adjudication, of the ways in which the, the laws of kind of, of evidence development and civil adjudication have evolved over the years, the way in which, you know, experts in, in, in other types of cases ideally should have personal experience with the subject matter that they're dealing with and so on and so forth. So there's a, it's, it's, it's a complicated set of, of, of explanations. But again, 
this has to do with the institutional features of courts. So when you read, you know, Moody's opinion in the Arkansas case, um, and other judges have, have also said things like this, you can see that they'll dismiss the testimony of people like James Cantor, right? The Canadian psychologist. Well, James Cantor knows the medical literature and through a, through a, a lens of evidence-based medicine better than most people. He's one of the world's leading experts on this, on this question. And the fact that he doesn't personally prescribe puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to kids is not only not a point against him, it's a point in his favor. It means that he is more neutral as an expert, more dispassionate than, than again, than somebody like Jack Turbin. But a judge looks at that and says, no, no, I'm going to disqualify James Cantor as an expert because he doesn't treat trans kids. So that, you know, and that is a major factor. And of course, the other major factor is the medical associations. They submit these amicus briefs. I've done fact checking of these amicus briefs. They are full of mistakes, full of, of mischaracterizations of the research. But that's not something that a judge or a law clerk can really pick up on. They need to be, they need to have the competence. They need to understand the medical literature better. They need to have the time and the willingness to comb through these citations. And most importantly, they need to have a disposition of, of kind of healthy distrust towards groups like the AAP instead of just taking them at their word that they have done all the legwork of, of research. They need to say, let me check your work. Let me see if, in fact, the, the studies that you're citing show what they say you show. So you have a machine that has the ability to, to, to bury the truth, to submit error-ridden, falsehood-ridden, misinformation-ridden with briefs to the court, with, with authoritative backing behind it. So it's this Kafkaesque situation where the, the authorities have been captured by advocates and, and those authorities are the ones that judges are going to defer to by default. Reasonably. That's that's a point I want to emphasize. Yes. Reasonably, judges, right. because of their institutional position, it, with with tremendous difficulty, yes, will have the willingness to to override the the opinion of of most medical associations. I I don't fault them for that. And so, the the counter argument rests upon things that have been done in Europe: actual comprehensive mm -hmm. evidence reviews, mm -hmm. admissions within you know the endocrine society reports that have mm -hmm. said we're making this recommendation but we're doing it on the basis of low to very low quality evidence a handful of other documents the obama administration they had their social security sort of research entity look into the question uh, mm -hmm. uh, of whether a transition was medically necessary beneficial whether the risks outweighed the benefits and they came with a recommendation that no we can't in good conscience, having considered the evidence, recommend that Medicare cover this procedure. And, and this was not just pediatric transition, it was adult transition, which still yeah. has a very weak evidence base, but a vastly stronger evidence base than we have for attempting these procedures on children. Well, um, I, just, just, just to correct the record here, yeah. I wouldn't say that they have a, a much stronger evidence base. It's just that the ethical hazard, the moral hazard is yeah. lower. Because you're dealing with adults who have, you know, if they're, especially if they're over 25, frankly, 
Yeah. They have the maturity to understand much better than kids. I'm not saying they always understand, but at least much better than kids. They have the maturity, the mental capacity to understand the full consequences of the choice that they're making. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that, that even that data is is very inconclusive and they were right. not able to make a positive right. recommendation right. on behalf of it. And so it's even dicier for children. And yet we have this expert consensus. We have these associations that have been captured. Now, there Mm -hmm. is a process of educating the public, and it turns out that judges are members of the public. Judges read Vox, they read BuzzFeed, and they they read Huffington Post and the activist garbage that is widely in circulation. They watch the Jon Stewart show, and and that copy pasta ends Mm -hmm. up showing up in judges' decisions. But all of these structural constraints that you talk about they're true for the appellate court. They're, they're true for the Supreme Court. And mm-hmm. now there, there is a counter narrative and it's, it's driven by our recognition of what happened in Europe. I guess that stuff is entered into the record as well, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to register. It doesn't, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's the thing that convinced me and I think it's convinced thousands of other people who, who are paying attention, close attention to this issue. Judges are not. And in a way, you just have to get a judge that has been primed by this understanding in, in much the same way that most judges are primed by the ACLU-derived narrative that's out there in circulation. And and it, it will turn out to be the case that conservative judges are going to be more, more likely to be that way. They will create a circuit split, and then it will go to a conservative court. Is that basically right. the... That's basically the 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 kind of the course of these things that you're that you look yeah, forward to. Yeah, so let me say kind of two things, two reflections on, on what you just said, which is which is very good. One is, you know, starting with the issue of Europe. To some extent, I would even argue that kind of bringing the experience of Europe into these lawsuits can actually work against the states that mm. have passed these restrictions, and the yeah. reason is. Again, the other side's lawyers have become very capable of making the claim that Europe has not totally banned the use of these drugs, right? right? That they they still allow them in, 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 in exceptional circumstances. They don't always call it exceptional circumstances. You know, they sometimes I've read statements by American affirming clinicians and, and lawyers where they've said something like Europe is still business as usual and it, it, it and Europe is still using the American affirmative model. Mm. Uh, I don't think any European country uses the American affirmative model. Germany, France never might come. Huh. You know, probably not. I mean, Germany maybe comes close, you know, Spain, France maybe come close, but nobody is as, as insane as we are when it comes to this stuff. But, you know, it, it is true that Sweden, Finland, the UK still allow for puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in exceptional circumstances after, ideally, after, you know, extensive psychotherapy and differential diagnosis. And the other side's lawyers have been using that very effectively to say, if Republicans, if, these, if the Republicans who passed these laws really wanted to practice evidence-based medicine, they themselves are citing the Europeans. Why are they not following the Europeans' lead and doing what the Europeans are doing, right? Mm. Meaning imposing restrictions as opposed to banning these procedures entirely for minors. And therefore, the argument goes, this is evidence that this is not and never has been really about evidence-based medicine. This has always been about sheer animus towards transgender people as a group. Mm. Now, of course, that argument fails. It's not convincing, for the reasons I specified earlier, right, that, that in fact, the Europeans are transitioning kids against the findings of their own systematic reviews. 
that the Europeans have recognized that this is an ongoing medical experiment. And I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that Americans, that, that U.S. states can decide not to experiment on kids. And I think probably most importantly, that we have ample evidence on the record that gender clinics across the United States are not restraining themselves in the administration of these treatments. They are giving them out, as the director of the Boston, Boston Children's Gender Clinic said, like candy. Mm. That Again, those are the ideal conditions under which a state has to come in and, and I would argue, ban these treatments entirely. In other words, when the American medical establishment comes back to its senses and stops deluding the public that this is settled science, that the only people who can object to it are, are disgusting transphobes and so on and so forth, when it starts showing that it's, that it's serious and when it starts doing systematic reviews, when it imposes restrictions, when it says, like the Europeans, that psychotherapy should be the first line of treatment for all kids who identify as trans and have distress. Under those conditions, I would argue the case for, for red states doing what the European states is stronger, although I still don't think it's necessarily compelling, but at least it's stronger. So that's, that's on the issue of Europeans. And I, I, again, I think that if this could be carefully explained to a judge, I think a judge would agree. But you're dealing with lawyers who, however smart and well-intentioned they are, they have so little time to kind of grapple with these issues and, and, and process them and understand how the other side is kind of manipulating judges into, into thinking certain things. They usually just don't have time to come to these insights. But the other thing that I've noticed is really important in these lawsuits has to do with language. Judges in these cases are using activist-approved language. They refer to sex as assigned at birth. They refer to gender identity as a real scientifically proven concept, even though it's not. You know, the first section of the Alabama judge that just issued a preliminary injunction against Florida's law, the first section of that judge's opinion is titled, Gender Identity is Real which is a little odd to hear from a judge. That's You would expect to hear to, to read something like that from a snarky college student, not from a federal judge. But, but, but that's, you know, so, so you could see that these judges have really imbibed through the language of transgender metaphysics, they've imbibed the ideology and they look at these issues from the lens of a kind of the, the philosophical anthropology of the transgender movement. So just to give you an example, there's a Second Circuit case dealing with athletics, Seoul versus the Connecticut Athletic Association of Schools, something like that. And the lawyers from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who were representing the, the plaintiffs in that, in that lawsuit, the girls who had to run against biological males, they were using male pronouns to refer to the two, to the two track runners, who, biologically male track runners, who ran in and won, I think it was something like 15 state championship competitions over the course of three years. And they were using male pronouns to refer to them and arguing like these are biologically male students. They went through puberty. The fact that they suppressed their testosterone does not negate their natural advantages. And the judge in that case said, I don't, I, I'm not going to allow you to refer to them in, to use that language because I want you to be civil. I think that's the word that he used. I want you to be civil. And therefore you have to refer to them in the female, with female pronouns. Now, you know, on one level, you can say, okay, fine, like, uh, you know, we want to keep up civility in the court, and we don't want to unnecessarily offend people. But at the same time, like, which pronouns are appropriate, is obviously related to the question of what their sex is, because pronouns, we would argue, 
are, are sex-based, not gender identity-based. And the entire case turned on whether these girls, I wouldn't say the entire case, but a big question in the case were whether these girls are really girls as opposed to boys who identify as girls or want to be recognized as girls. So it's, by it's, adopting, yeah. It's a movement that's based on begging one question. Because if trans women are women and trans women are men, everything follows. Right. And if they can get you to adopt that language, then you have determined in advance. And I guess that's what you're about to say. In a sense, the outcome of the case and every case that touches upon yeah, us. I think that's right. I mean, I don't think it's as kind of clear cut, but I think adopting the language. And by the way, there are trans advocacy organizations that do trainings for judges to instruct them on how to speak and what language to use to be inclusive. These trainings are not just for language purposes. They're not just to uphold a civility in the courtroom. You can, you can believe that the organizations doing these trainings know exactly what they're doing. They know that if the federal judges use the language, all of the philosophical assumptions will follow, sometimes even subconsciously, right? Not necessarily consciously. And so here's the crucial issue. If the question becomes, right, if you, if you assume that gender, that all humans have a gender identity, that it's innate, immutable, noble from a very early age, and so on and so forth, and trans kids know who they are, if the question becomes, should transgender kids get transgender medicine, who would say no to that? If the question is, should kids who feel alienated from their bodies or who reject rigidly defined gender roles be given puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones as the least invasive and most ethically responsible treatment for their, for, for their distress, that's a very different question. So uh, the use of language in these, in these lawsuits, in these proceedings, already primes judges to think about the legal issues in a way that almost guarantees victory to the other side. And, and it's why the most extreme positions are ones that are staked out and zealously defended. Because if the, if, the, if the person with a penis who used it to rape a woman is a woman, <laughs> if the person on that extreme is simply a person who has an identity because he tells us that's what his identity is and gender identity dogma says that it's an internal feeling that only you can know and that only, the rest of us can only know by listening and instantly deferring to the testimony of the person offering it to us, then every other person who is not out on that limb is for sure protected by the fact that they are in fact what they say they are. And so it's a perfectly consistent, perfectly closed system of casuistry that they have managed to enjam into law, into policy. And because of who it is that is doing this work, a kind of non-governmental entity that is that 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 operates without any you know the constraints of democracy or the accountability of it, but that in effect has managed to accrue to itself something very close to plenary power over our, our understanding of the yeah. operations of the civil rights state, right? Um, in ways that judges well, not are going to. I mean, yes, but not just the civil rights state. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, uh, corporate Social power. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, corporate power is very strongly aligned mm -hmm. on this issue in favor of, of kind of transgender metaphysics, transgender policies. So it, it's not just the levers of the civil rights state, which are extremely important, don't get me wrong, 
Yeah. But it's all other sources of social, political, economic power that have, you know, I, the, the one holdout is the Republican Party. They've the Republican decided Party, to, yeah. they've decided to make this thing happen. They've decided that this thing is going to be our reality at any cost. And they have, they have probably misjudged what that cost is going to be in terms of it's going to be imposed on people and it's going to mean the, you know, the, the 14 year old girl that has to shower with the person with a penis and that's going to start happening at scale. It's, it's going to be the sorority that has to allow the person who gets erect watching the sorority sisters change with his intact penis because he declares himself to be a woman. It's going to mean all of that at, it, you know, at the scale of the millions, right? Well, I, I don't um, know about millions. I mean, look, I, you're... In terms of food is, effects. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In terms of not not in terms of discrete in, in, incidents, but who right. kind of Yeah, and there's, to... and there's a... Right, and there's kind of a broad chilling effect that, that that's likely to take place. You know, yes, a male running... You know, Leah Thomas competing in the pool, again, you know, might displace... You can probably... Fi- have a finite list of five or six female athletes that, that Leah Thomas displaced, but the effects of that can be very demoralizing to a, a generation of girls who are who grow up and see, you know, one Leah Thomas, two Leah Thomases, you know, five or six examples of this in one year and find that extremely demoralizing and say, what chance do I have? And we don't have good studies on this. We don't know the effects of that demoralization, the trickle down effects. We don't know, but I think it's reason it's reasonable to assume that it's going to have these kinds of demoralizing effects on on a large number of girls, much, much longer, much larger than the actual number who, who participate in these sports and compete against people like Leah Thomas. Yeah, I think but that's yeah, right. I mean, 2016, the, right. when they issued their guidance on this, the Title IX guidance, the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education, they said concerns about safety or privacy that, that, that girls may have are, are not something that we're going to place on the scale they're they're not part of there is an absolute right that right. that 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 flows from gender identification and well except except the, the the obama administration had this really had this peculiarity in its dear colleague letter yeah 2016 where it said for the purposes of bathrooms locker rooms those kinds of accommodations that conventional biological anatomical definition of sex is a stereotype meaning the only legally allowable definition of male and female is based on gender identity. But then on the section on athletics, Mm. the Office for Civil Rights said schools can make exceptions based on, you know, anatomical, physical features related to safety and and, and the competitive nature of a sport, provided that they're not overly broad rules, right? That they're narrowly tailored to ensuring fairness and safety for, for biological females and, and women's sports. So mm. if, if OCR wanted to be consistent, it would say, just as with bathrooms, the only thing that matters towards whether somebody's male or female is how they feel inside. So too with athletics, the only thing that, that d- determines who's eligible to participate in women's sports is whoever feels like they're a woman. But they didn't say that. And in fact, in, as far as I know, and I may be wrong, I'd, the last time I looked at this was probably a year ago, but as far as I know, the athletics lawsuits, yeah. also litigated extensively by the ACLU, were careful not to say that in athletics, the only thing that matters is gender identity, right? They constantly emphasize, no, no, these, these trans women are suppressing their testosterone and they're doing all these kinds of things. Well, why should that matter? If you're saying that the only thing that determines whether somebody is a girl or a woman mm. is their gender identity, 
why should they ever have to suppress their testosterone? They're, they're women and girls are just like, on the contrary, it, it's discriminatory to expect some girls to suppress their testosterone and others not to, if, if we accept your assumptions about this, right? But they don't say that. And that's, I think that's very telling. So all of the entities that engage in the kind of non-electoral politics, right, mm -hmm. have, have pledged to make this thing a reality and to do it at almost any cost. And so it is a kind of, from the position of the political scientist, a kind of limit case of, of, of the kind of ultimate swamp, right? You, you have all of these entities that, that there was never, there was never any deliberative process. There was never any debate about whether these mandates were going to come down. They all came down at once, you know, starting 2016, 2019, and then our culture, you know, moved to accommodate them. Um, and, you know, they, the, the full force of them has not been felt. I think, it, it, you know, if the Biden administration moves ahead with the, you know, the Title IX rulemaking, it's we're going to start seeing more of it happening in colleges. Right. And but the, the one entity within the system is the is the GOP. But but it's operating within a very politically polarized situation right. where resistance from the GOP then sort of ratifies this this language of emergency. You know, we have this, you know, we have this horrible, you know, neo-fascist, you know, right wing movements. And, you know, and you can see it in the coverage of The New York Times, because there's a period where they were trying to put the some of the realities about, you know, puberty blockers and, and, you know, even gender surgery onto the record. And it looked like a move toward a kind of moderation. Mm -hmm. And then there was an intervention by the, by the activists, by the activist organizations that have had pretty much controlled coverage prior to that brief interregnum, right? Where Reuters and the New York Times really got many realities onto the record, including that, you know, clinics are not doing anything like, right, the kind of right. comprehensive, That's right. you know, evaluation of the transgender identified that, that was supposed to be, that, you know, that the Dutch study had said, you know, was a kind of precondition for any of this. Right. And then, in fact, seven of the 18 that they spoke to were quite comfortable giving puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones after the first visit. Right. All of this got onto the record of the mainstream media. But then the cascade of bills came down and then it became a partisan issue. And then the New York Times, they reframed this legislative response for the reasons that you described, because the medicine had kind of run off the rails and they reframed it as, oh, Republicans have been working on this, you know, kind of reactionary, you know, they, they've been glomming onto this, you know, this wedge issue. And, and so the, when it became a partisan issue, the Times then kind of responding to, you know, Glad and, and, and a thousand journalists that signed an open letter saying, you know, you know, you have you've betrayed this movement. It, it's been reframed in partisan terms. And now it looks like a kind of, you know, in addition to bans happening in 20 states, we have a growing number of states of blue states legislatures turning those states into into sanctuary states for that they're not going to return, you know, kids to their parents if they are seeking gender affirming care, increasingly giving young people discretion to pursue cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers with, without even parental notice or consent, in addition to social transition therapy. So I think of it in a way as a kind of nation buildings 
projects, yeah. <laughs> right, within a, and, you know, there was recently an AP story about population transfers between red and blue states. It didn't make reference to this issue, but this is, this is a key dividing line. This is a very polarizing yeah. issue, especially to parents. And it is, it, it, it's, it's a kind of like, you know, neo-colonial, right, like ideology where, where, where those who consider themselves to be the elect, you know, dictate to the benighted that no, in fact, there's a future that we're going to live, a future beyond gender, where we're going to teach children at the earliest ages that they can choose which sex they're going to be, that they all have a gender identity. And this, in fact, is becoming a part of, you know, mandatory curriculum in many blue states, including right. New Jersey and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're going to, you know, we're going to let young kids know that, that, that there are surgical and hormonal procedures that can allow them to be their true authentic selves and that we're not going to allow anyone to interfere with it, including, above all, the greatest danger that is presented to such children, their own parents, if, if those parents have objections. So it's a movement toward emancipation of children from parental authority. It's a movement of making medicine not a diagnostic field, but an affirmative field, right? Mm-hmm. Where instead of saying, well, there's this real thing called the gender identity, and we have a real ability to investigate and discover what it is, we simply take at face value whatever representation a student makes. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole new metaphysics, a whole new way of conceiving of the human subject, a whole new way of thinking of gendered and sex differences that that corporate America, that, 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 that the, the cultural, you know, sort of cultural institutions will speak in one voice as making our new reality. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're gonna have to give your pronouns in order to access, you know, you, you go to the doctor, you have to enter your pronouns, right? And sort of affirm in the process that you believe in a gendered soul and that you are male or female by virtue of an active internal identification rather than you just were born male or female. A whole new transgender metaphysics that is becoming officially inscribed through our major institutions. And then, and then we have outlying states, right? Who, who represent the past, who represent the, you know, the aging America, who, you know, who, who are not the economically dynamic parts of the country, even though that's, that's changed actually very recently in the last few years. And, and this is part of what's going to happen, right? Like, like two thirds, two thirds of the GDP of the country, this is a kind of democratic talking point of its forward looking, you know, technologically advanced, you know, urban centers that are growing at the expense of, you know, sort of the empty, you know, the the empty land that, that nonetheless, you know, has two senators, right? Like for, for every single one of them. So it's a basis for a kind of national divide. And it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all working its way through the system. All the powers that be that create our reality, other than this regressive political party representing the backward elements of America, Right. right, are are aligned with this brave new future, and <clears throat> and why does that future not happen? What 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 are yours? And give it because you gave a great explanation for you gave a great explanation for why structurally why judges why there is this incredible asymmetry between you know between the ACLU and the state attorneys general, and 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 you were like, well, yes, we're going to lose all the injunctions, but I think in the long run. 
we're not going to lose all of the cases or we're not going to lose the case in the long, the cases in the long run. Right. Uh, but why is that reasoning not decisive in the end that the powers that be do in fact the swamp, whatever you want to call it, right? The successor coalition. Yeah. Why do they not have plenary power to decide this reality for everyone? Okay. So you put a lot on the table there. I mean, this is, yeah, this is fundamental stuff. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, I think, I think we're going to have to learn to live with some changes in our institutions, in our culture, and they're going to be, they're not, they're not going to, they're going to be impossible to undo. Yeah. And some of those changes are, are good. It's good, I think, that adults who, you know, want to live as the opposite sex, who, but, but within boundaries, meaning they respect the, the rights of other people, the civil liberties of other people. They don't, demand that other people use a certain language. They don't demand that they be able to participate in their sports teams, that they be able to undress in their locker rooms and things like that. There are transsexual adults, and they call themselves transsexual. There are transsexual adults who understand and respect those boundaries and, and know what it means to live in a liberal society in which tolerance rather than celebration and acceptance is the appropriate virtue. And it's a good thing that those people can live in a society that's a little bit more accepting towards them. I, I, I genuinely think that. At the same time, I think it's important to understand that there's going to be changes that are going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to undo. I think you're going to see the wave of kids identifying as trans go down significantly over the next few years as, you know, those of us arguing that a lot of the stuff is driven by cultural fads should keep in mind that the, the first social group to, to, you know, rid itself of social fads is always teenagers, right? As soon as the adults start doing it and approving of it, or the more that adults start doing it and approving it, teenagers start to see through it. They start to see that it's not spontaneous and organic and authentic and part of youth culture anymore. And so they kind of ditch it and they move on to the next thing. And I think that we're, we're going to see that with a lot of the trans identification, not all of it. You're always going to have kids who use the transgender lens to interpret their experiences and their feelings of going through puberty and so on and so forth. You're always going to have the Munchausen by proxy moms. They're never going to go away. Uh, their numbers might go down, but they're not going to go away. So some of this is with us to stay. And it's just a matter of how we, how we manage it as opposed to how we try to, to solve the problem. It's, it's a matter of how we manage it. But here's what I would say. I think the infusion of this ideology into our institutions, into our public life, is ultimately unsustainable. I think most people, including, I would argue, most people who claim to believe in it, don't really believe in it. And what I mean by that is, yes, they're willing to respect the conventions of trans ideology, the use of pronouns, the, the, you know, the signature in the, in the email, the he, him, all that's fine. But if you ask them in a private conversation where they can be confident that they will never be quoted on the record, do you really believe that somebody who until 35 was a ma male who presented himself socially as a man and then makes the transition, so to speak, to become a woman, do you really believe that that person is a woman? They'll, they, even if they say yes, and in many cases they'll say no, but even if they say yes, when you ask what, what, what do you mean, you very quickly realize that what, what they mean is that they agree that that person has, uh, that person sincerely feels that they're a woman. 
that doesn't mean that they are a woman. It just means that they sincerely feel like they are. And out of compassion and empathy, we should not challenge that feeling, that sincere feeling. So then you ask, well, why shouldn't we? And then you almost always, it, it, it ends up being some kind of argument about individualism, apathy, right? I'm, look, Wesley, I'm Tocquevillian when it comes to these kinds of things. I think individualism, apathy, in public indifference is by far and away the most powerful driving force of American politics and, and, and social change. That's how, for example, the debate over same-sex marriage was won. It wasn't won by giving kind of, you know, esoteric moral arguments about the value of same-sex partnerships or some platonic notion of erotic love or anything like that. No, it was won by telling mainstream liberals, what do you care? How does this affect you personally? It was an appeal to liberal apathy. And, you know, there's good things about that and bad things about that, right? If we value a, a freedom and letting people live their life as they see fit, some degree of apathy is important. But we also understand that you cannot run a society on the basis of a citizenry that, it's to that is totally apathetic to what, to what other people choose to do and, and in which morality is pr purely a private matter of subjective belief. That's not sustainable. But I think that we're living very much through a, a kind of an emperor's new clothes situation. Take the example of the article that appeared yesterday in the Daily Signal. I think it was Mary Olihan on, on chest feeding, right? So these are, are, are trans women, meaning biological males who use estrogen or you know, artificial synthetic drugs to induce lactation in order to feed infants. As, just as a test case, I sent this article to a number of people that I know, friends, colleagues, who are much more liberal than I am and who I know disagree with me, maybe not entirely, but disagree enough with me on the gender medicine stuff that for me, these people are kind of a good test case for how you see this particular social issue. 100% of them told me that this is just absolutely disgusting and outrageous. And the fact that the CDC would, would, would recommend this it goes is a, is a complete violation of, of its institutional responsibility that this, this type of thing crosses every boundary, it crosses every red line. Are they going to say that in public? Of course not. They would all lose their job immediately. I'm not even sure they're willing to say that privately to other liberals. They'll say it to me because they, they know that I tr they can trust my discretion and they know, that, 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 that they know where I stand on these things. But I think people privately have a very different view of some of these issues than they're willing to let on publicly. This is very much an emperor's new close situation. But that the but CDC... The CDC yeah. recommended it. It's proof of a degree well, it, of I, I don't I don't know that it recommended institutional it's, capture, right? Right. That, I, I don't know that the CDC recommended it. I'd have to read the. I haven't read the CDC okay. um, statement. And it's so much as as it, it changed the language that it uses to describe breastfeeding. It now calls it chest feeding. It says that men can chest feed and all these kinds of things, right? So so it's reflected. This new situation is in which you have males, probably autogynephiliac. Auto who may, I don't know, but may derive a pleasure from, from having a, an infant suckle on their nipples, I don't know, in which they are using hormone-induced lactation. You know, the CDC should come out strongly and say, until we have good research, at minimum, it should say, until we have good research that this is safe, it should not be done. I would much prefer the CDC to come out and say, I'm sorry, but this crosses a line. But in any case, yes, that is the situation. And, you know, because of kind of the, the structure of 
of this ideology, the, the kind of no enemy to my left, right? Nobody can, nobody can outwoke me. I always have to be the most woke person in the room because I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be an oppressor and so on and so forth. Because of the logic of that thinking, you're going to see ever more extreme examples like this surface. It's going to become ever more extreme, ever more taboo, violating. And that means that you're going to have more and more people who are pro-trans on a wide variety of issues say, no, no, this is actually grotesque. This crosses every line and this should not happen. And, and I think it's, it's by necessity there's that logic built into it. But if you don't mind, let me say a few words also about the partisan issue, the Republican Party and so on, because that, that's a really important component of what's going on here. And then maybe we can pivot to the Texas stuff if, if you want. Yeah. So let me make three points about partisanship, because one of the things that, you know, Europeans like to observe when they comment on what's going on in America with gender medicine and liberals like to observe by liberals, I mean, liberals who are skeptical or even critical of gender medicine but who still consider themselves, you know, Democrats and liberals and so on and so forth. One of the things that they say is it's unfortunate that this had to get swept up in the logic of, of our party polarization dynamics, right? That this had to become a red versus blue thing, a Democrat versus Republican thing. This should, this should really be a good government thing or a science thing. I understand that, but let me, uh, let me make a few observations of, of why, of the relevance of the partisanship here, the meaning of the partisanship, and why I think that this issue, like so many others, inevitably has to become partisan. There's no other way in which this can get resolved. So the first point I just want to make is that because of how our political system is set up, it creates very strong incentives for us to have only two parties, two dominant parties. There are third parties and stuff, but they usually go nowhere, right? We are, by and large, a two-party system. And that means that the parties are big tents. They have to be a loose coalition of interests, ideas, voters, constituencies, social groups, and so on and so forth. Within the Republican coalition, you are going to find knuckle-dragging, hateful bigots who hate transgender people, who hate gay people, who are driven by sheer animus and who support bans on gender-affirming care. You're also going to find extremely compassionate civil people who only want what's best for medically and ethically best for everybody, who also agree that, that this issue crosses the line, that this, uh, there's a, a real medical scandal here, and who will vote Republican in order to end it. And, and you're going to find everybody in between. Our parties are big tents. And just like I would never say that Republicans all support a certain policy for the same motives, I would also say that Democrats never all support the same policy from the same motives. People can have different reasons for arriving at the same conclusion. To give just one example, minimum wage laws were originally put into place in order to price out immigrants from the job market. Does that mean that everybody who supports minimum wage is doing it because they want to price out, quote unquote, the socially undesirable elements? Of course not. Some people support minimum wage because they think it's the only or the best way to support low wage workers. Fine. So, you know, people are complicated. Parties are complicated. And one of the things that I found distressing is you look at some of these, for example, law, law legal opinions by judges on the pediatric gender medicine bans they will do what's called nut picking, right? They'll, they'll pick out these highly selected 
highly selective quotes by certain Republicans in certain states that say things like, you know, trans transgenderism is a is a, a, a crime against nature. I'm, I, I don't I don't know. I don't remember the exact quote, something like that. And they'll say this is evidence of what all Republicans think of how all Republicans are motivated on this matter. That's obviously not true. And it just strikes me as a, as a dereliction of a judge's duty to be a little bit more humble about what he has in his hands when he makes those type of claims. Okay, so that's the first point I wanted to make, that, that our parties are, are big tent, loose coalitions, and that it's highly irresponsible to point to one particular motive and say all the people in the big tent share that motive. The second thing is, I think in our... So I've been saying for a long time that the, the fundamental story here aside from kind of the systematic, the system, the systemic issues of American politics, the fundamental story behind trans medicine in particular, but I think all trans issues in general is tribalism. I think there's a lot of people on the left, a lot of Democrats, a lot of liberals who agree with Republicans that their party is totally, their meaning the Democratic Party is totally off the rails on this issue. But the tribal instincts of Americans are so powerful that it's very hard for them to bring themselves to a situation where they say, I'm no longer a Democrat. And I think the involvement of, or a liberal, I'm no longer a, a, a progressive, I should say, right? If, if this is what being a progressive means, I'm not a progressive, right? And I think, and I know this from having spoken to a lot of these progressives, I think many of them use the Republican Party's par participation on this issue they use the fact that Republicans are the ones passing these laws as an excuse to not do what their conscience is telling them they have to do. So they'll, they'll say some things like, yes, the Republicans are getting the science right, whether for good or bad motives, they're getting the science right. But, you know, they're passing these bans and these bans, are, there's, we, we have some statements to, on the record showing that they're motivated by, by, you know, bad faith and things like that. And so I can't bring myself to side with that, right? And I, I, I understand the tribal mindset. I'm human. I also have it. We all have it. But at, at some level, I think liberals are going to have to start recognizing that there's a point at which they can no longer use the Republican Party's championing of this issue as an excuse to, to, to not do what they fundamentally at a deep level know is right. So that's the second point I wanted to make, the tribalism point. The third point... And this is really speaks to what I was saying earlier that, you know, at the end of the day, this issue is going to be partisan and political no matter what. And the reason for that, again, has to do with the unique nature of the American political system. We don't have a strong welfare state, a centralized, highly bureaucratized welfare state like the Europeans do. We don't have a welfare state that is driven by primarily by expertise. The American welfare state was designed from the beginning to be much more politicized intentionally. And the reason for that was that they wanted to make sure the progressives and the New Dealers and later, you know, the, the 1960s people, right, they wanted to make sure that the, agent, that the agencies of government, the bureaucracy, would not be able, would always remain accountable to the people. In the case, let's say, of the progressive movement through the election of the president who would then kind of have a power over the bureaucracy. Right. So so the, and, and so just to give an example, the, every incoming American president can make around 4000 appointments to the bureaucracy. 
That's a huge number of appointments. President Trump famously filled only about half of those seats. And so unlike in the European system, where there has strong traditions of civil service, of, of tenure, um, where only a small number, a relatively smaller number of bureaucrats changes with the rotations of, of electoral politics, in the United States, the, the bureaucracy is highly politicized by design. And this speaks to a, a deeper phenomenon in American political culture, which is our long tradition of distrust, of expertise, of authority, our desire to keep the power of government as close as possible to ourselves, to, to the local level, right? To, the le to, to bring it as far as possible under the control of the individual voter. And what this means in practice is that there's a much bigger role for political parties in our system, meaning what in Europe might be done through bureaucrats who ideally, not always, but ideally exercise neutral expertise here in the United States is going to be done through the political process, through bargaining, through compromise, through political partisanship. And, you know, when people say things like, I wish this issue wouldn't be so politicized, what they're really saying, as far as I'm concerned, is I wish we didn't live with our Amer American political system. And that's fine, but that's a different debate to have, right? The American system has advantages and disadvantages, just like the European system has advantages and disadvantages. But to just say, I'm fine with our system of separation of government and checks and balances and federalism, but I also wish that the issue of gender medicine wouldn't be so politicized, something about that position strikes me as deeply incoherent. This is how our system is work works. This is how it's designed to work. And this issue is going to get resolved through normal electoral politics. There's nothing we can do about it. So, you know, do I think that there's a chance that the Democratic Party is going to come back to its senses? Yes, I do. And I think it's a matter of time because how could they not? But but it's going to we already have examples. And now we're kind of going into Texas. Right. There were what is it? Four or five Democratic members of the Texas House who voted in favor of SB 14. They said, oh, I cannot in good conscience vote against this law. We need to protect children from well-intended harm. So, and, and they did yeah. it because they heard things in testimony and in committee that persuaded them where the balance of the evidence was. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know why they did it. I mean, I would imagine being Democrats and being... So this is the other feature of our system, right? That, that individual lawmakers, unlike in Europe, the members of, of the Republican and Democratic parties are much less able to count on the party as an institution to give them backing, financial, organizational, reputational backing in election season. Unlike lawmakers in other countries, American lawmakers are very much on their own. They do have some support from their party, don't get me wrong, but they're very much on their own in terms of fundraising, cultivating a, a support base, and so on and so forth. And that means that they're highly vulnerable to primaries. And especially in our day and age, when primaries are decided by the extreme elements of each party, right, the kind of the 8% progressive activist base has uh, much less influence over the general election, but a, a hugely disproportionate influence over the, the primaries, these individual lawmakers, these five Democrats in Texas are going to face a primary. And in the primary, it would not surprise me at all if they lose. Because, you know, if you antagonize the, the interest groups, the progressive activist base and the ACLU and so on and so forth, they're, they're going to come after you with everything they've got. They're going to put a, put a candidate and fund the candidate and, and support them in every way they can. And, you know, good luck to you. So for, for Democrats to take a position on this issue 
there is a kind of a, uh, you know, nobody wants to be the first who, right? Nobody wants to be the first who sticks their neck out. And I think it's not, but once you get a critical mass of Democrats who say this is insane, this needs to stop, um, then I think a lot more Democrats are going to discover their courage and, 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 and come out against it. We're nowhere near that day, right? That day is still very, very far away. But it's, I, I, I do expect that it's going to happen. And I should say, I don't think it's an accident that the Texas lawmakers who voted in favor of SB 14 are African-Americans who represent minority majority districts, or at least minority heavy districts. You know, these kind of... Yes, because um, 90% of Black people are in the Democratic Party, which means that more of them are conservative culturally. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to put it. And, you know, it it, it just doesn't surprise me. African-Americans tend to have a stronger kind of religious tradition, a more conservative streak to them culturally. And so they're more immune. I don't mean that religion is what makes one opposed to gender-affirming care, although it could. But I think African-Americans, except for kind of the new generation of, of you know, college-educated activist African-Americans, kind of the, the Black Lives Matter organizers and stuff, by and large, African-Americans are, are more moderate, more conservative, and, and less vulnerable to, to kind of woke, woke pressures and woke ideology. Yeah. I mean, Elizabeth Warren learned this in South Carolina, right. where, you know, the, the Times had a piece about how she... She really made a big push to court the activist class and and was their candidate. And, mm-hmm. you know, they yielded, I think, less than one percent of the vote. Right. So so in Texas, talk about your role and what you what you testified to, what you observed. And and I don't know if you have the ability to show a couple of clips, but you talked about some really revealing moments where, you know, where, where their experts are, they're, they're stuck in a, a pickle where they have to. Mm-hmm where they have to lie and in ways that that is, you know, kind of strategically very harmful to their political, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck in a conundrum. And maybe right. you can describe that and perhaps illustrate it with some yeah. pieces of video if you can access them. Uh, sure, but so anyway, just, just begin yeah, by talking about what you did, talk about the law and, and your role in it. Sure. So, you know, I've been invited to testify in a number of states. I've provided a number of lawmakers with kind of experts, with technical expertise. You know, they, they want to know, some of them know quite a bit coming into this issue. Some of them know a little bit. Some of them don't know anything. And they want to know, like, what, what, is the res- what does the research say? What, what, what is evidence-based medicine? What are the Europeans doing? And so there's kind of a learning curve there. But in the case of Texas, so I've testified so far in two states. And the main reason I testified in those states is because the the lawmakers sponsoring the bills and kind of leading the charge are doctors. And they're doctors who are very concerned about what's going on in their profession, who are very um, deeply empathetic people. Like Michael Kennedy in um, in Utah is just, he's he's a very, very empathetic person. You can watch the hearing. I think the video is online you know, a, a real a, a real man of integrity. And I, I respect that tremendously. And, and the same goes for Dr. Oliverson in Texas. And, you know, what, what I would say is that when you have a lawmaker who cares about getting the science right on this issue, making sure that that they're doing it for the right reasons, and not just because it's popular with Republic with the Republican voters, but because this really is the, the correct scientific, medical, and ethical judgment. And they're deeply invested in gaining the expertise and interrogating the other side, the best experts that the other side can, can bring. 
that is a kind of a situation where I, I am very happy to play a role and, and I have, and I am playing a role. I do play a role. And so I think the Texas scenario was, was uniquely a good scenario for us because it, <clears throat> Dr. Oliverson in the House and Dr. Donna Campbell in the Senate, who was also tremendous on this, they, their approach was to say to the other side's expert witnesses, show your work. Show me the evidence. You keep saying that gender-affirming care is medically necessary. You keep saying that it's a suicide prevention mechanism. You keep saying that the regret is almost non-existent. Show me your evidence. What studies are you relying on specifically? What, what do you know about evidence-based medicine? What, how do you rank the, the expert opinion of, of a doctor against, for example, a randomized control trial or against a systematic review? What is a systematic evidence review? What are the Europeans doing and why? Why do you think that you have it right and they have it wrong? What's your evidence, right? So that's the kind of thing that, that Campbell in the Senate and Oliverson in the House were willing to do. Um, and that took, of course, on their part, a tremendous amount of preparation. They had to take a lot of time out from their day. They were working on a lot of other bills uh, in order to prepare for these hearings. So I went there to support them and also, of course, to provide my own expert testimony. And it was a remarkable hearing. Because the other side did bring, Democrats did bring, you know, they came guns blazing and they brought some of their best expert witnesses. And it was a truly remarkable showing. I mean, I, I recommend to your, to your listeners my article in City Journal. It's called Making the Case for the Other Side. And I really go through, you know, a lot of the examples of how the doctors on the other side who are testifying not only are misrepresenting the science not only are misrepresenting the clinical realities on the ground, which for which we now have you know a large body of evidence, they don't even understand how evidence-based medicine works. That's what I found to be the most terrifying of all. They just don't understand EBM, or or they're lying. I'm I'm just going to assume that they're speaking in good faith. So, you know, let me give a couple examples here. And the first example I want to give, let me see. You know how to share your screen? There, like if you look. Uh, yeah, let me. Okay, so apologies just, for the delay here. Yeah, yeah. So there's stop and then mark clip, mic, and then share next right. to the speaker. Okay, so so this this is the, the hearing in the Senate, which was the first hearing. The hearing in the House came later. And this is Senator Donna Campbell, who, who led the charge in the Senate. And she is questioning Megan Mooney. You have, Megan you have Mooney not shared your screen, by the way. Yep, yep, yep. I'm, I'm just I'm looking okay. for the exact place. So just give me one second here. 136. Okay. So she's questioning Megan Mooney, who is, the, she's the president of the Texas Psychological Association. And she does gender-affirming gender care. Now, the role of the psychologist, supposedly, is the role of the gatekeeper, right? The psychologist is the one who's supposed to do the exploratory therapy is supposed to make sure that there's no what Hillary Cass in the UK called diagnostic overshadowing, which refers to a situation in which, you know, there's a pool of symptoms that could be linked to different conditions. And we want to make sure that we're diagnosing the right cause, the right condition that's associated with those symptoms. That's why you need exploratory therapy and all that kind of stuff. And that's exactly what the affirmative model is so against, right? The affirmative model says, if a kid says he's trans, he's trans, automatically believe him, never question him. And if the kid has all these psychological comorbid conditions, use the minority stress model to just assume that those, yeah, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, all that kind of stuff is because 
he hasn't been affirmed as his true gender self, right? And then once he has affirmation, all the problems will, if not resolved, then at least get much better. So this is Megan Mooney, president of the Texas Psychological Association. Let me share my screen. Sorry, so you said share, just hit share screen? Yeah, just, it's a share. Mm-hmm. And, and then, oh yeah, screen. okay, that's screen. Okay. Yeah. You share the screen and then you go into the it window says, that has the video. It says Google Chrome would like to record this computer screen. Do deny? No, let's do deny. Okay. So let's do this. All right. Can you see it now? No. Yes. Now I see it. Okay. There it is. Yep. Just a little tiny bit. I can't really. Right. The right thing. So I don't think she'd ever want to do the wrong. So this thing. is the. So I just want to know sorry. how do we get serve parents and their children in my practice. The kind of medical care that SB 14 seeks to prohibit for children is literally life-saving. Both the Texas Psychological Association and the American Psychological Association support gender-affirming psychological care and psychologists' important role in helping parents making decisions about possible medical care for their children. The role of psychologists and other mental health professionals in the care of transgender and gender-diverse youth includes supporting parents in understanding normal child and adolescent development, careful consideration of DSM-5 criteria for gender dysphoria when appropriate, along with the WPATH standards of care for transgender youth, and providing recommendations for parents to make the best decisions in the best interest of their child's health. This treatment includes a careful and thoughtful process. It is not quick. It may last months, if not years. This treatment process, like all others for mental health care of youth, is collaborative and involves considerations of the goals of the young person as well as their parents in the context of our professional standards of care and the evidence of effective therapies. The role of psychologists often includes supporting transgender youth in the context of harassment and discrimination, as well as helping them manage expectations, anxiety, and dysphoria while regularly assessing for the potential of suicide risk. We have considerable data about the important mental health benefits of medical interventions, including puberty blockers and hormone treatments for transgender youth. Research has demonstrated that gender-affirming medical care decreases suicidality, depression, and anxiety, as well as increases self-confidence and improves body image. With appropriate medical care, transgender youth may have decreased need for therapy and psychotropic medications. In addition to evidence of the positive mental health impacts of gender-affirming medical care, we also have data about the potential psychological harms of delaying treatment. For example, later age of beginning medical treatments has been associated with worsening mental health, including increased risk of suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and self-harming behaviors. Furthermore, these youth continue to experience gender dysphoria, and this may worsen, which can result in increased or continued reliance on psychotropic medications and therapy. Thus, requiring a person to delay evidence-based gender-affirming medical care is not a neutral option. It is one that creates increased risk for psychological distress, including thoughts or possible attempts of suicide. I urge you to consider what science tells us consistently. Gender-affirming medical care is the recommended evidence-based approach to treat gender dysphoria in youth. It's supported by every major medical and mental health association and is keeping with my ethics code as a psychologist. This legislation will harm children as opposed to helping them. So TPA, TPA and I thus strongly urge you to oppose SB 14. Senator Menendez. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Okay, so um, now Senator Menendez, he's a Democrat, is going to question her. So let, let's just skip. Sorry, I'm just going to skip to the part where where Senator Campbell interrogates her. So very confidently presented by a credentialed yes. figure. Right. Uh, if what she's saying is true, there's absolutely no reason to oppose this. Right. Give me one second. Okay, so now here, 155. Senator Campbell. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Whenever a child comes in and says, I'm a trans kid. Do you believe them? Yes. So when a 12-year-old comes in to a clinic and says, I'm trans, you believe her if it was yes. a girl. So what's the prescribing, what's the basis for prescribing puberty blockers? Is being trans enough or are there some trans kids that you might say no to? I'm not a prescribing physician, so I can't speak to the- Yes, but you are the one that is there to either sign a paper that says they've had therapy and it's okay to put them on medications, right? I am there to say that they meet criteria for clinical distress. So they see you, they get to you because you're a known expert. So they're referred to you, you see them, you believe them, you sign a form, they take it to the doc and they're, they're able to get, they've had the counseling and they're able now to get the medicines. It is not that simplistic, no, Senator. Well, I'm just cutting to the chase. That's what they do. Do you ever tell them no? Do you ever not sign one? If they say they're trans, a cha- trans child, There's do not- you ever not sign the form that would allow them to get therapy from a physician? There's not a form to sign. Well, you sign something, a letter. I write an individualized letter. <coughs> okay, is there is something that a parent requests that I provide for a treating <coughs> physician? Okay, let me stop you there. I just don't, it's, so it's a letter, not a form. Is there ever a time when a trans child comes in or a child comes in, says they're trans, you believe them that you do not sign a letter because the parents are wanting a letter so that they can get the, the child on medication? When again, after it's just yes or no conversation with the child and their parent about their treatment goals jointly as a family, and if I judge that in what I know from psychological science, that's in the best. Okay, I, I really don't don't need all that. But your decision is based on the child believing the child is a transgender child. Yes. Okay. Okay, so I think this this exchange is remarkable to me, and it really kind of distills some of the, the, the deep tensions within the, the, the affirmative model. So let me just say a few things about it. First of all, what's, you know, what the Europeans are doing now is an approach that, that emphasizes differential diagnosis, right? That's a concept I raised earlier, and that just means making sure that when a kid says, I'm trans... And, and is diagnosed with gender dysphoria, that we're not giving the kid puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones because the trans identity is secondary to some unresolved 
problem, right? That it's not a maladaptive coping mechanism or anything like that, that the girl doesn't feel alienated from her body because she was raped as a, as a, as a, you know, as a young girl or whatever, right? Differential diagnosis is absolutely necessary in medicine to ensure that there's no false positives and that you're not giving the wrong medicine to, to, to a patient. This was a perfect opportunity, a perfect setup for Megan Mooney to assure the public that she does differential diagnosis. All she had to say was, yes, of course I've said no to patients. Just like any doctor has will, will tell you, there are times when a patient comes in and says, I think I have X, and I look at him, I do the test, and he doesn't have X. So I don't write the prescription, right? Imagine if a, if a, 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 a doctor was asked, do you, do you prescribe OxyContin to every patient who wants it and, and who says I'm in pain? And the doctor said, yes. You would think that something is wrong, right? We, we, we expect doctors to do differential diagnosis to do a little bit more gatekeeping. And this was an opportunity for Megan Mooney to show, to demonstrate to the public that she does that. And she didn't do it. So the question is why? And the answer, there's two answers, two possible answers, right? One is she doesn't do differential diagnosis. She's an affirmative therapist. And if the kid says, I want drugs and the parents are on board, she's going to write the letter of support. By the way, she was being very evasive, but in order to get drugs, you, you, your therapist has to provide a letter of support. Gender clinics require a letter of support. And therapists who either don't want to provide one or don't know how to provide one, you, often gender clinics just have kind of a template that they just give the therapist and say, here, just sign the dotted line. We know what we're doing, right? So, so she's absolutely the gatekeeper and her letters of support are, are absolutely necessary for these kids to be put on, on drugs. And so, you know, one option, one possibility for why she didn't say no to Senator Campbell is that she's never said no to a kid, ever. And that's terrifying to think. I don't know that that's the case. Maybe she has said no, in which case, why would she not admit that? in public testimony on the record, it, it serves her case to admit it. And the, the answer, the reason is it would enrage the activists because the trans activists who are kind of hover around the medical establishment, like a, you know, a, a constantly scrutinizing every move of every doctor in this area. And most of the activists, or actually some of the activists are themselves the doctors, right? who are policing other doctors' therapeutic and clinical decisions, they are absolutely against what they call gatekeeping. Because gatekeeping is, is profoundly at odds with the affirmative model and its assumptions about gender identity being innate, immutable, and noble from, a young, young, from, from early age. It means that when a kid says, I'm trans, they might not be trans, by which I mean they might not have a lifelong permanent transsexual identity they might be going through a phase. Their trans identity might be a maladaptive coping mechanism. There could be a lot of different reasons why they say I'm trans, right? But for but Megan Mooney already said, if a kid comes in and says I'm trans, I believe him. So, I mean, this to me was just a stunning example of how even when it serves their purposes to say that they do gatekeeping and they sometimes say no, they're still unable to do that. And they're unable to do that because of the stranglehold that a small number of very vocal and very belligerent activists have over the medical field on this question. So, you know, in my piece, I go through some of the evidence, uh, some of the statements on the record of, of people like Jack Turbin actively saying there should be absolutely no gatekeeping, none whatsoever. So that was just one example, Megan Mooney, but like these types of examples came up over and over and over in the Senate hearing and especially in the House hearing, which was 
well, we had even more evidence of the of these shenanigans by by doctors and psychiatrists. The the Times Magazine had a really long piece. It was like a twenty thousand word piece on pediatric gender medicine, and it hinged around sort of presenting a debate within WPATH about whether they were going to continue to have a requirement for comprehensive psychological evaluation before you move on to medicalization. And she presented it as, oh, you have these radicals that want to get rid of gatekeeping altogether. You also have whistleblowers like Erica Anderson and Laura Edwards Leeper, who are drawing attention to the fact that the affirmative model is on the march throughout their throughout their profession. And it ends by by sort of reassuring us that, in fact, you know, the forces that wanted to keep this requirement within the standards of care, they prevailed. And and I believe SOC 8 does, in fact, say that, you know, that, that it is the position of this standard setting organization that you do have to do a comprehensive psychological evaluation. And the doctor gave lip service to this in her in her prepared presentation, emphasizing the fact that these evaluations can go on for a long time and so on and so forth, presenting the argument that, oh, you have reasonable experts that are in charge, they're doing their due diligence. But when confronted with one question, (laughs) one yes or no question by a state senator was actually not in a position to be able to say that she had ever said no. Providing dispositive proof of the thing that Erica Anderson and, and Laura Edward Leeper had blown the whistle on back in 2021 in a Washington right. Post article where they said that they're just form letters that are being shotgunned out, you know, on the first visit. This is happening. We know this to be happening. They quote somebody saying there's no psychological evaluation needed because being trans is not a mental disorder, which is, you know, basically the case for the, you know, for the affirmative model. And mm-hmm. and what we have on the record is the the head of the Texas Psychological Association saying, of course, no, I can't, you know, I don't say no. And so we well, know she, did, to... she, did, she didn't say I don't say no. She She's... wasn't willing to say I don't say she no. Was... Let's, let's, let's just be precise about that. But yes, I, I, I'm just saying that, that she had a strong interest in saying no, professional interest yes. in, 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 in saying yes, saying yes, I have declined to write these letters, and but she couldn't do it or would Was not able to say yes. Right. And so this is something that is now proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Right. And it's on the record in congressional hearings. It's been published in the press. And this is part of a body of evidence that is going to go to the next round of judges in terms of whether any real discretion is being exercised here. I don't know necessarily that this type of evidence might go. I mean, I think one of the purposes of me coming to Texas was so that we would establish an evidentiary record that could be used in litigation. I mean, that's super important, right? Yeah. Right. And 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 again, I could give many, many, many examples from from those days of of, of of doctors lying or deceiving on the record. But look, I mean, I think it's important to understand when when people like Megan Mooney, you know, say these assessments take months, they're comprehensive, they're multidisciplinary, this, that, and the other. It's important, just like everything else with regard to, to trans issues and, and gender medicine in particular, it's important to understand the realities that lie behind the euphemisms. When they say multidisciplinary assessments, what do they mean? Do they mean what we, what, what we expect, what we think they should mean, which is that you have, let's say, one clinician who practices affirmative care, another who, who does 
careful, you know, depth psychology, psycho psychoanalysis, all that kind of stuff. No, they mean that they have an endocrinologist, a pediatrician, a psychologist, and a social worker who are all committed to the affirmative model. It's in the narrow and superficial sense, it's multidisciplinary because the 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 the, the people on the on the team come from different medical disciplines. But in the yep. more important sense of being different disciplines for understanding the problem, diagnosing the problem, looking at potentially less invasive options, it is not at all inter- multidisciplinary. And in fact, if you go to, for example, I'm just giving an example, the website of the Dorenbacher Gender Clinic, Dorenbacher Children's Hospital Gender Clinic at the, in Oregon, in Portland, you'll see at the transgender center there, you'll see that they openly say, I, I think it was on one of their presentations, internal presentations, they openly say, we are proud that since 2015, we have made sure that every single clinician at the, uh, who, who, who is here at the clinic is committed to the affirmative approach. So they say it explicitly. There's nobody there that does exploratory therapy. There's nobody there that does actual, you know, proper therapeutic interventions and differential diagnosis. Now, when you say that, you know, when they say that, that, that these kids get comprehensive mental health interventions, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're doing exploratory therapy and differential diagnosis? Maybe, probably not. Here's how I interpret that in light of abundant evidence from Jamie Reed, the whistleblower, from things that we've read in the Reuters investigation, from a number of people who have contacted me privately, from Laura Edwards-Leeper and Erica Anderson, who blew the whistle on this, and from, of course, the affirming clinicians themselves. Here's what we know. We know that once these clinicians, once these therapists use the minority stress model, they understand their role as therapists as helping a transgender kid cope with being transgender. That's it. That's what they mean by psychotherapeutic assessment and support. They don't mean exploratory therapy. They don't mean figuring out why the kid is, is feeling alienated from her body and, and wants to amputate her breasts. What they mean is, as soon as a kid tells me I'm trans, and if that kid also has severe depression and eating disorders, and then I'm going to do my best as a professional to make sure that they feel comfortable being trans and that other people accept them as being trans and that they, they're, they're, they, they come to terms with their decision to undergo medical transition. If you, if you look at the, the book Time to Think about the Tavistock, it really mm-hmm. is about the initiatory process through which, through which the kind of cult-like, you still had this legacy population of people who were trained in the normative practices of psychotherapy, right. psychoanalysis, who objected to the, the tendency toward the affirmative model that was driven by, by mermaids, by an outside nonprofit group, and also by a director who was very sympathetic to the movement. And therefore, there was pushback, and there was internal dissent, and it eventually yielded the, you know, the CAS you know, survey, discovering you know, all of these excesses of the combination of the affirmative model and, and the minority stress model in practice over medication, where puberty blockers was the answer to everything. So you have a number of the students who, in addition to identifying as transgender, also identified as East Asian because right. they had been inducted into a trans identity and online anime groups. And so this is where the social contagion is happening for 
people who were trained in the normative practices of the predecessor psychotherapeutic tradition, this was a red flag that maybe something else is going on with these kids other than really being, you know, members of the opposite sex. Whereas to the institution as a whole, this was a basis to, you know, pause the puberty on these children. America is different. I think that the gender clinics kind of emerged within the, the, this cult-like atmosphere. And for the most part, there isn't any kind of internal dissent because the, there, there's been a self-selection process. The reason you are there is because you are a part of a movement that sees your mission, as you just described it, a person who says they're trans is trans. And our purpose as clinicians is to help the trans person live their true authentic self end of story. And nonetheless, there are some conscientious figures like Jamie Reed. I'm sure she's not the only one who find themselves employed in these settings. And they had a different understanding. They did not have the understanding of, of Jack Turbin or this woman who just spoke. And but they are, you know, deterred from speaking by the same you know, the same group psychology and, 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 and social sanctions that, 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 have, that have allowed this movement, you know, to kind of move without any dissent, despite the fact that there probably is a lot right. more of it underground than we know. Are there any other moments you want to draw our attention to in, in the Texas? Or do you want to respond to that? And then are there any other moments? Yeah, you want to look I at? mean, no, I think, I think what you're saying about the difference between the Tavistock Clinic and and the American Pediatric Gender Centers is a very good point. I actually hadn't thought of it exactly in those terms. I think it's a very useful way to think about it, right? I mean, one of the points that Hannah Barnes makes in her book, I think early on, and makes actually makes it several times, but especially early on makes it well, is that, you know, these these institutions have a kind of a founding ethos. And that ethos can get corrupted. The founding ethos of the Tavistock Clinic was psychotherapy. You know, the, the, the Tavistock doesn't prescribe anything. The GIDS doesn't prescribe anything. It refers to, to, to other hospitals for prescriptions, but it doesn't prescribe. It just, it does psychotherapy. Whereas in the United States, you know, the first gender clinic opened in 2007 in Boston. And this was already after the Dutch had rolled out their, their protocol. And in the first years of the Boston clinic, from what I've understood from Laura Edwards Leeper. I don't, I don't know that this view reflects what Norman Spack, who was kind of the founding endocrinologist there, thinks, but at least as far as Laura is concerned, you know, the, the founding, the, 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 the ethos there at the beginning was, yeah, these medical interventions are, are good, but we have to be extremely careful, right? That they're appropriate only for a tiny number of kids. And what ended up happening over the next 15 years is civil rights, kind of shaped how Americans think about this issue. It's no longer what is the best treatment for kids who experience gender dysphoria, but whether trans kids should get trans medicine. And of course, maybe even more important, smartphones and social media, which led to an explosion of kids, especially teenage girls identifying as trans and seeking these interventions. And that really changed the entire dynamic. And, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for Laura here, but I imagine if you were at, if you had asked her back then, like, if you knew in advance that this is where things were headed, would you have wanted to found the clinic? Would you have wanted to, to be the founding psychologist there? I don't know what her answer would be. I wouldn't be surprised if she would say no. But I don't know. I don't want to speak for her. But yeah, anyway, other examples. I mean, there's plenty. You know, there's maybe without giving the actual testimony, I can just say that, you know, just reading from my, from my article here, we had in both the House and the Senate, we had a physician and lawyer by the name of Cody Miller Pike, who is 
him, himself, herself, I don't know what the correct pronouns, transgender, said to, to the Senate, to the Texas senators, and I quote, children under the age of 18 in this country do not have gender reassignment surgery. There isn't a single case. Lewis Apple, who is the president of the local chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and Jessica Zwiener, whose testimony in, in the Senate, but especially in the House, was, I think, just remarkable. And I'll, I'll give another example of this in a minute. Jessica is a Houston-based endocrinologist who practices gender-affirming care. They testified, and I quote, surgeries are not part of the standard of care. And Zwiener added, quote, no one is touching these kids' genitals. There's not surgery done on minors. I mean, these statements are demonstrably false. We have hard evidence, including evidence published in peer-reviewed journals, showing that genital surgeries have absolutely been done on kids, that mastectomies have by been- min- uh, On minors, by 17, 17 year olds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, earlier than that. And, and um, mastectomies have been and, done on kids and, as long as 12. It, yeah. Right. Right. And, and that the number, you know, the genital surgeries remain rare. Reuters found evidence of 56 of these procedures. There may be more because they, they, they were basing that on, on insurance claims and insurance doesn't always cover these procedures. But I think it's safe to say that genital surgeries in, in minors happen, but they're very rare. Double mastectomies are also, they're not extremely common, but the number of double mastectomies has, has risen very, very rapidly over the past few years. I go over some of the evidence in my piece, but you know, it's, it, it went up, for example, 500% between 2016 and 2019. And these, you know, I, if I had to guess, I would say that the number of, of teenage girls who have received double mastectomies now, I've done some kind of some crude calculations based on peer-reviewed research and, and Reuters data and things like that. If, if the trajectories remained constant from the time that the data were collected until today, I would just estimate that the number of teenage girls who have gotten double mastectomies is in the low thousands. So somewhere between like one and, and 2,000 girls, potentially a little bit more than that. So, you know, it's not extremely common, but thousands of girls receiving double mastectomies is teenage girls receiving double mastectomies is, is nothing is nothing to, to balk at. I mean, the so, brazenness of these doctors yeah. to be able to lie like this yeah. when we had a, a, a reality show right. that that where 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 a male had his puberty blocked at 11 and mm-hmm. had his and had his testicles and his penis removed on TV. We mm-hmm. saw the surgery happen at the age of 17, and then mm-hmm. there were subsequently, you know, more surgeries because there were terrible complications that that resulted from it. Mm-hmm. It it it's out in the open. It right. was celebrated on television as a, as as a heartwarming and inspiring moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why do they feel they have to lie to a legislature rather than get up and defend the necessity of these medically necessary? activities. It's another example where, you know, where they know the public is not with them and therefore yeah. they have to lie. A hundred percent. I mean, just to give a couple more examples, like Jessica Zwiener, the Houston-based endocrinologist, when she testified in the house, she said, and I quote, medical transition is recommended as the gold standard treatment for gender dysphoria by every major medical body in this country. Now, if you've followed my work, you know that in August, Julia Mason and I, the pediatrician Julia Mason and I, took out an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which we challenged the AAP on its shoddy science behind its transgender medical policy. And the AAP president responded and said, 
that for the vast majority of kids, of gender dysphoric kids, the exact opposite of drugs and surgeries are, are, are appropriate. The vast majority of gender dysphoric kids should be getting the exact opposite of drugs and surgeries. So Jessica Zwiener in Texas was asked, I think it was Dr. Oliverson who asked her, but it may have been one of the other Republicans on the committee. She was asked, are, are drugs and surgeries as medicalization always the answer to gender dysphoric kids? And she said, and I quote, in my experience, it's almost always the answer. This seems to be a clear contradiction of the AAP statement. And it means that very likely the AAP is completely out of touch with realities on the ground. So, you know, that, that's just one more example. Let me give one last example, because it speaks also not just to the way in which the doctors who testify distort the, the, the studies, misrepresent their findings, and, and, and lie or mischaracterize the, the realities on the ground. But I think on a more fundamental level, they don't understand how evidence-based medicine works. So just to give an example, at the House hearing, Dr. Oliverson asked Jessica Zwiener, whether the treatments that she's trying to defend reduce suicide in adolescence. And Zwiener said, of course, that they do. And Oliverson asked if she could cite the studies. And here's what Zwiener said, quote, I can, and one thing to know, sorry, I can, and one thing is to know what studies, I mean, you know, this is, you know this, you're a physician, but the way we come to know the truth in science is complex. I know we don't like that word, but every study is different, and we look at the accumulation of evidence. There are small studies that show no effect on the suicide rate, but when you look at the studies in aggregate and compare that with clinical experience, you, you get to her conclusion. That is not how evidence-based medicine works. The sum of, of, of you know, a dozen very poorly controlled studies that have, you know, very limited findings and, and, and where, you know, the follow-up times are extremely short, the confounding variables are serious, the selection bias is acute, where these studies are rated as furnishing very low quality using the grade system. The sum of 12 studies does not equal one good study. Right? The sum of 12 bad studies does not equal one bad study. Sorry, what? <laughs> the, sum, the sum of 12 bad studies does not equal one yes. good study. And, and it certainly does not amount to an evidence-based practice. And the fact that she then added, and you compare the aggregate of these studies with clinical experience, well, clinical experience is even lower than these than observational cohort studies or cross-sectional studies on the scale of, on the hierarchy of evidence and evidence-based medicine. Clinical experience furnishes the least reliable type of information, according to EBM, because of the serious risk of confirmation bias that doctors face. So this tells me one of two things. Either Jessica Zwiener knows how evidence-based medicine works and is lying, trying to deceive the public, or what I think is much more likely, she doesn't know how evidence-based medicine works. And, you know, I think it's reasonable for the public to expect that doctors who are engaging in a medical practice that carries huge risks, not just medical, but also moral, ethical risks, I think it's a reasonable thing to expect that these doctors have a basic grasp of evidence-based medicine principles. So in a very high-stakes public forum where it was important for them to bring their A-team and bring their A-game, they marshaled their forces and they revealed mendacity, <laughs> total ignorance of the basic protocols of truth-seeking, and incapacity to support 
the very confidently and authoritatively made pronouncements on behalf of a pseudo consensus that does not in fact exist mm -hmm. and confirmed the worst projections that their opponents and those seeking to ban these practices might make about what is actually happening on the ground. They did it in spite of themselves. They did it in spite of the fact that they had an opportunity to lie mm -hmm. <laughs> even and just insist that no, in fact, you know, yes, of course I say no, and it's not appropriate. They weren't able to do that right. under those circumstances. Instead, showed their ass in every conceivable possible way. And that's how we know, that's what we know, that they, that's what we know yeah. about the state of this, of this practice, what that's they right. I mean, themselves even, have revealed in their own words. Exactly, exactly. And even when in the house hearing, there was a, a, a transgender doctor named Colt St. Ahmad, right? He was, uh, I think he was at the Mayo Clinic, I'm not sure. Even when Dr. St. Ahmad came onto the witness stand and brought a stack of studies and presumably to hand over to Dr. Oliverson and show here, here's your evidence, right? So even in that situation, the doctor showed clear ignorance about how to read a scientific study. So just to give you an example, the study that he cited as supporting the claim that the rate of regret is 1% or less is a systematic evidence review done by Valeria Bustos and, and her colleagues for, published in 2021 that claimed to find that the rate of regret in post-surgery transsexuals was less than 1%. Now, if you look at the studies that went into that systematic evidence review, you see a number of very interesting things. The first thing that you see is that the study that furnished the, 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 the about half of all of the individuals who were included. So the, the, the systematic review covered almost 8,000 people um, yeah. accumulated in all these studies. And the study from the Netherlands that, that provided about 4,500 of these individuals, it turns out that the, because of a computing error, because of a math error, the, the, the authors of that study artificially doubled the number of people who are actually there. So already you can take out about 2,500 people. But that's not even the most fatal problem. If you look at the studies themselves, the characteristics of the study, which is what a systematic evidence review does, you see that the vast, vast majority of the individuals in the, in the underlying studies were adults who were transitioned as adults under very, very rigorous gatekeeping. They were not kids. They were not transitioned as kids. They were certainly not transitioned under the American Affirmative Protocol. So that's number one. So it's simply inapplicable to our situation. Number two, the leading studies in that systematic review had lost to follow-up rates of between 28 and over 40%. This was, by the way, pointed out in a peer-reviewed letter to the editor. And, you know, why, why did they have such high dropout rates? I mean, that's an extraordinarily high dropout rate. I mean, one ex possible explanation is that these people were lost to follow up because they no longer wish to continue with their medical transition, right? They, they regretted detransition. Who knows? It's possible that all 28 to 48% regretted and detransitioned. It's possible that half of them, a third of them, we don't know. What we can, I think, know with reasonable confidence is that the, the true rate of regret and detransition is not 1%, right? Now, does Dr. St. Ahmad know this? Honestly, I would, it would not surprise me one bit if, because we've seen this happen over and over and over again in this area of medicine, if he read the abstract and never bothered to read the remainder of the study. In other words, it would not surprise me one bit if he has no idea about these methodological problems and short and limitations.
but this is the kind of thing that we deal with. And, and just to maybe conclude our, our discussion of Texas, I went in there fully prepared to be grilled by the Democrats on the committee. I wanted them to ask me questions. That was half the reason I was going. I was desperate for them to ask me questions. The amount of the number of substantive questions that I got from the Democrats is zero, not a single one. <laughs> the only question that I, I got two questions. The first one was, is the Manhattan Institute a conservative think tank? The second one, have you had any publications in peer-reviewed journals? That's mm. it. That's all they wanted to know. No. Because in their world, it's all ad hominems, right? It's never engaging on substance, never engaging on the science, never asking interesting, compelling, open-minded questions. It's all just to, to discredit, discredit, discredit. And it's not that Republicans don't do that. But in this particular case, and again, this is why I went to Texas. In this particular case, we had Republicans on the committee who were committed to the scientific debate, who did care about what the evidence does and does not say, who did want to understand the methodological problems with the studies and why the systematic reviews rated them as being very low quality. Were they able to respond to the doctor in real time with that objection about loss to follow up and so on? No, I, I don't think Dr. Oliverson was familiar with the shortcomings of that particular systematic review. I think the idea was to have them tell the, 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 the committee members on the record what study you're relying on so that the committee members could then go and look it up and see and, and, and you know, do the, the analysis for, the, for themselves. And Dr. Oliverson is, you know, he's a man of science. He knows how to read a study. So I'm, I'm sure that he knows the problems of the Busto systematic review. Now, the outcome of the, the vote was, was never in doubt because, uh, you know, right. Texas, they, you know, the Republicans, did, did any of them break ranks to vote against it or was it? I don't think so. I know, that, I, I mean, usually in these situations, there is, you know, there are Republicans who want more aggressive bills, yeah, more draconian measures, criminalizing and, you know, criminal penalties and so on and so forth. Right. Again, one of the reasons I was eager to work on the Texas case and on the Utah case is because the bills are actually very moderate. Mm. I think they, 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 they assume that doctors who do these things are not bad actors so much as misled and, and incompetent. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't penalties that are appropriate. I think, for me, loss of license at minimum is appropriate. But 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 the, the, the bills are a little bit more measured. I certainly there have been state bills that I would never testify in favor for that criminalize parents mm. who provide who agree to these provisions. I, I would not. I what, would never what testify state in favor did that? that. What states did that? Well, I, I don't think any state passed it. I okay. think they were proposed. Yeah, I yeah. think Tennessee, I think I believe Tennessee had a proposal in there. Maybe even Texas. It could be that one of the Republican lawmakers in Texas wanted to, to include criminal penalties for parents. But, you know, my position on this is parents are being lied to. Are there Munchausen moms? Sure. Are there parents who want to transition their kids for their own psychological benefits? Probably. But I don't think that they, by any stretch of the imagination, represent most parents. I think most parents who go through with this do it because they're being lied to, because their kids are desperate. And, and that's not for me. We're not yet at the stage where we can expect parents to have encountered the critical side of this debate. It's only starting to emerge in mainstream media very, very slowly. So we're nowhere near being able to hold parents morally and legally liable for this kind of stuff. Is the Texas bill 
it's still going to be enjoined, but has it been designed to be to withstand judicial scrutiny to a greater degree than some of these other bills? Yes. The short answer is yes. There's kind of model legislation that's designed to make these bills a little bit more court proof. You can never make them court proof fully, but you know, some of the judicial actions taken against these laws are done on the basis of, of technicalities that make sense in the context of like yeah, traditional legal adjudication, but are just bizarre in the case of gender medicine. For example, if you, if you don't distinguish in the law between treatments given to biological boys and treatments given to biological girls, you open yourself up to an equal protection challenge. Hmm. which is just weird. That's not how medicine works. Medicine works by scientific arguments, not by these abstract legal claims about equal protection with analogies to, you know, to sex discrimination cases that have absolutely nothing to do with transgender medicine. But, but that's, that's, the, that's the, the consequence of using courts to settle policy disputes. So yes, they're, they're designed to be a little bit more court-proof than previous laws. And, you know, if there is a law that might survive judicial review, I think it probably is that of Texas, only because, you know, if it ends up in the Northern District, you get a judge like Reed O'Connor, he's likely to be a lot more sympathetic to the, to, to, to the Texas authorities. But who knows? We've had two Trump judges so far block these laws from going into effect. Is, so the ultimate fate of these laws is going to be decided by the Supreme Court? I think that's very likely. I mean, the only way in which that doesn't happen is if the medical associations first back away from it, from from the affirmative model. And it's possible. I mean, look, it's going to take several years for this to bubble up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. First, it has to go through the trials. Then it has to go through the appeals courts. And then, I mean, there's a whole process. And it, it could we could be talking about this in four or five years from now and saying maybe soon the Supreme Court will take this case. And by then, we may not have a conservative majority anymore. So it's impossible to know. But I would say, unless the medical associations come, you know, decapture themselves, unless enough doctors tell the AAP, we're going to be, we're no longer going to be due paying members until you stop, you stop this, then you do a systematic review and you, you follow the path of the Europeans. I don't, I think the court, these are inevitably going to be solved in the courts. Is there any possibility of that happening? What you just described? We're working on it. You know, I think it's important at minimum that the public understand what medical associations are, how they operate, what their incentives are, and what the nature of the consensus on gender medicine is. It is not that I think if you ask, you know, if you take a citizen off the street who has heard that there's a consensus of medical associations in support of gender affirming care, I assure you that that person is going to assume that all of that, that experts in all of these medical associations have independently, carefully combed through all the research. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth, right? You basically have three medical groups, the AAP, Endocrine Society, and WPATH, that have issued research-based statements on this issue. All other associations are relying on, their, on, on these three. The AAP's statement is not even a medical guideline. They, they, they say that explicitly. And of course, we, we know the problems with all three of their statements, but this is a very shallow, kind of carefully, cleverly crafted pseudo-consensus. And it's important, I think, for Americans to understand that these, are, these groups are first and foremost trade associations, trade unions, much like the teachers' unions, the NEA, right? And to assume that the teachers' unions, everything they do is in the interest of students and learning is absurd. 
I don't think anybody believes that. That doesn't mean that teachers and teachers unions don't care about education. It just means that in situations where the interests of the students are in competition with the interests of the teachers, the unions will always side with the teachers 100% of the time because they have to. That's what their incentive structure forces them to do. And in a similar way, if there's ever a situation in which the interest of patients contradicts the interests of doctors, the medical associations are always or almost always going to side with the doctors. And we have precedent for that. We have examples of that in history of knee, unnecessary knee surgeries where you know, high quality randomized, double blind randomized control trials show that atheroscopic surgery doesn't work, that it's no better than a fake surgery in which patients were misled into believing that they were operated on when they weren't. And, and you know, the, the, the professional association of surgeons that deals with that issue actively thwarted efforts to introduce evidence-based practices into the field because they didn't want to run afoul of the doctors who perform these procedures and built a career on them and benefit from them financially. So that's just the reality. But there is this question of, you know, AAP, are they really representing the interests of their membership? I mean... Do their members <laughs> want to block the puberty of children? I mean, I would say they're, they are in, in the short term. So, so much like any in organization, you have problems of collective choice, collective action. You have a diffuse minority, sorry, a diffuse majority of, of members or affiliates who are either ignorant about the issue, who I think reasonably put a lot of trust in their colleagues who do claim to have special expertise on this matter, who are extremely busy with their own patients in their own lives, don't have time to keep on top of the research, and who have no choice but to take a lot of their clinical advice from, from the medical association that they belong to. And I think maybe most importantly, who know what's going to happen to them if they speak up. And on the other side, you have a small, highly organized very ideological, extremely motivated group of, of clinicians who are promoting gender-affirming care, practicing it, benefiting it from, from it personally and professionally in terms of their reputation, their, their academic appointments, their hospital careers, and all that kind of stuff. And so you, just ha you have a classic scenario in which an organization is going to get captured by a small minority of people and, and where the large majority has no interest or no desire to, to do anything about it. But the average pediatrician who sees that piece of video that we just showed mm -hmm. and understands it within context, mm -hmm. will, won't he see through the looking glass? <laughs> won't he realize that, uh, that, that something, something very odd has happened here? I think so. I think so. Look, I mean, you know, pediatrics is a, is a special field. Pediatrics and psychology are special fields because they are highly vulnerable to woke woke ideas and capture. And, you know, the reason is that the people who tend to gravitate into those fields are, are, as one pediatrician put it to me, this is not my words, bleeding heart liberals, right? People who, for whom empathy and compassion are the only virtue and, and for whom empathy can easily be weaponized and easily can be kind of, can, can evade the control of, of reason. Right, because empathy can. There is such a thing as as pathological altruism. To, to quote the title of a book, right, Paul Bloom, pathological altruism, empathy, good intentions that lead to harm, that lead to bad results. Of course, that happens. We know it from our everyday lives. But these two fields 
are tend to attract people who are kind of even more empathetic, even more compassion driven than other fields of medicine. And so, you know, it's not surprising that that we're seeing that. I think there are a lot of pediatricians that are, as you put it, looking through the through the looking glass and 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 know what they're seeing and, and are appalled by it. But again, the incentives are such that that they it's very it's going to be very difficult for them to solve these problems of collective choice and, and actually impose their policy preferences on on the AAP. And so you so, said you're working on yeah. it. Julia is working on it. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. it is it a realistic prospect or is it just a thing that one has to do despite the fact that like no it'll never happen well i could tell you this it's a, it's definitely an unrealistic prospect if nobody works on it yeah okay uh, you have to you have to take a bit of a leap of faith here right but look i mean i would say but are you seeing things are you seeing green shoots or not really yeah look i mean i think so as institutions the American Medical Associations at some point have to recognize their higher self-interest, their enlightened self-interest. Yeah. And that is to retain the trust, not just of doctors, but of the public at large. And these institutions are eroding the public trust in their authority. You know, the AAP, this is not the first example of, of, of the AAP kind of de departing from, from what the science says for political reasons. We saw this during COVID, with masking, with school closures. We saw this with peanut allergies. There's a really good piece by Aaron Sabarium in the, in the free press that discusses these kind of the politicization of the AAP. So, you know, there are examples of this, and of course, in the opioid epidemics, the American Pain Society. These are associations are known to take money from pharmaceutical companies and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think like other woke, examples of woke capture of institutions, I think the, what, what the woke capturers don't understand is that they are drawing down a precious resource, political capital, that was built up painstakingly over generations. Trust is something that's very easy to destroy and very difficult to build back up. And I think in their mind, it's an endless, it's an endless resource. It'll never dry up. And that reflects a kind of hubris and arrogance about how institutions work, how institutions coordinate the thinking and the action of American, of, of citizens in a democracy. And so I think when you have an institutional leader that comes into the AAP and says, I'm thinking about where the AAP is going to be in 10 years from now, in 15 years from now, in 30 years from now, I want to make sure that it still has the authority that it has today. And it's not going to have that authority if we keep allowing a small group of activists who, who disregard evidence-based medicine to dictate the policies that shape our field. Now, the AMA made their choice with their with their recent, you know, the new president. Is he the president or? The, yeah. He's the new president. And the yeah. Endocrine Society just appointed a new president. And guess what, what this new president of the Endocrine Society's position is? Guess what he does? Gender affirming care. <laughs> he runs a gender clinic. And so controversy is starting to happen. Mm -hmm. the, the, the counter, you know, the, the, the counter case is making its way onto the record. And the response has been to triple down by putting these intense activists who are going to make insane proclamations about how there is no debate and it's, it's settled science, despite their own documents that continue to no, remain in force. No, I don't think they're going to say that anymore, Wesley. Okay. There, there, there's been a pivot in the recent weeks okeks okay. or months. Yeah. I think well, the, the AMA narrative... just did it, but okay. But, well, yeah. 
well, he, uh, it, it was a statement from 2021 where okay. he said there's no debate. There's no yeah. debate. I think he still probably thinks that it's settled science, which is right. just an absurd way for a doctor to think about anything. But, but regardless, yeah. I think there's a pivot going on now from this is settled science to, yes, it's low quality evidence, but mo- many medical interventions are low quality evidence, especially yeah, what, in the field of pediatrics. I think that's what the Arkansas judge said. He was like, it, the it, evidence is all, always weak, and we, we go yeah, with it anywhere. And, and, and the Florida What's the judge, to that? <laughs> so the Florida judge explicitly said that, you know, Meredith yeah. McNamara, who's, who's kind of the, she's, she's jockeying to become the new Jack Turbin for reasons I can't even fathom why anybody would want to replace Jack Turbin as, as the pinnacle of the, of, of the deranged firmers. But, but that's what she wants, so good luck to her. Look, I, they're arguing that, that there are a lot of interventions, especially in pediatrics, that don't have high-quality studies to support them, and, and they're right. Okay, so it's, it's a glitch here. Can you, can you, just, can you just refresh your page? There'll be a little pause, and, yeah, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Better? Okay, hold on. The host should stop recording for all, go to studio setting and choose optimized quality. I hate this. I, I, it, do, it does say that it's uploading. It is uploading, but it's saying that it's preventing recording. So, mm. and this has happened before and it doesn't work when that happens. Mm. And it's like this... This thing just fucking sucks. Is okay. Hold on. All right. I'm. All right. It doesn't say it anymore now, does it? I I don't have any message. All right. I think it's okay. So we'll finish up. What what were you saying? So look, I mean, this is a complicated argument. Too complicated to get into here. But just to point out some of the kind of the the surface absurdities of this. Yeah. In the Florida case, the judge gave the example of putting band aids on scrapes. Yeah. Now, you can easily see why the analogy is just fails on its face, right? Uh, you could put a thousand Band-Aids on a kid. That's not going to do anything to him. Yeah. It, what's the risk of using Band-Aids? Even if it's not an effective treatment against or a preventative measure against infections, what's the risk? Mm. But with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgeries, I mean, there's obvious risk, right? Yeah. So, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is when you're doing low-quality medical interventions... I'd say it's even more important to know that you're getting the diagnosis right, right? First, you need to diagnose the condition, and then you need to match the treatment to the diagnosis. Right. And when, when you're talking about a scrape on your toe, there's an objective diagnostic criteria, right? It's, it's not either you have the scrape or you don't. Yes. If, you're diagnosed, if, you're, if you're proposing an experimental cancer treatment that has low-quality evidence, you can diagnose the cancer. You can know with certainty that a person has cancer. Mm-hmm. What is the diagnosis for ge- for tra- being trans? I mean, presumably gender dysphoria, although we've already seen that the concept of gender dysphoria has been stretched so thin that any experience of dissatisfaction with one's body, with one's gender role is now diagnosed as gender dysphoria, right? There's been this kind of concept creeping, watering down of the threshold. But even... even if you don't assume that there's been a watering down, 
there's no objective test here. It's based on feelings of nonconformity and things like that. And, and we know from decades of research that most of the kids who have gender, non, gender dysphoria come to terms with their body by adulthood. The endocrine society itself says in its clinical guidelines from 2017 that the psychosexual outcome cannot be predicted in any individual case. Mm. Meaning we have no reliable indicators to say this particular kid is yeah. going to grow up to be a lifelong transsexual. Mm -hmm. Even though we know that there are some factors that are loosely associated with persistence of gender dysphoria over time. So, so there's no objective diagnosis. The risks are tremendous and, and, and much higher than putting a Band-Aid on. Yeah. Right? And, the and the benefits are completely uncertain. So the, 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 there's the diagnostic problem and the, the risk-benefit profile, which is ratio, which is totally different from some of these other examples given in, in pediatric, pediatric medicine. I think Meredith McNamara in the, Florida, <clears throat> in the Florida Board of Medicine stuff said, gave the example that we, we recommend that kids eat fruits and vegetables. And that's <laughs> not, as a way of, I think as a way of combating obesity, and that's not, that doesn't have high quality evidence. Do you mean to tell me that having two bananas a day is the same thing as getting your puberty blocked at 10 or two and followed up by cross-sex hormones? Yeah. Give me a break. Mm. I mean, it's just these analogies are absurd and actually prove why, why not all cases of low-quality evidence intervention are created equal. <laughs> okay. Was, uh, was that long enough? Was that marathon long enough for you, Wesley? I mean, yeah, we, that was we, long enough. We, so, we like to go three hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think <laughs> our first one was also three hours. Um, yeah, it was. So... Okay, so I don't know. What are your concluding thoughts? We're in the middle or we're in the early stages of uh, a fight that will go on for many years, if not decades. Yeah. A lot of stuff has unfolded in the last year or so since the last time we talked. What's your overall sense of where the momentum yeah, is, how big, things are changing? Big picture. So where are we today? I think we've definitely turned a corner. I think it's possible to criticize, raise questions about gender medicine, pediatric gender medicine today in a way that it was not possible even six months ago, let alone a year or two years. So we've definitely turned a corner. I think there's still a, a steep uphill climb for left of center journalism, which has been just absolutely abysmal on this question. That, I mean, that to me is one of the biggest failures of this, of the biggest causes of this scandal is the unwillingness of institutions like the New York Times, Washington Post to ask basic questions in an open-minded way. And I think that you're starting to see a little bit of sunlight being let in through, through the cracks, but it's, it's nowhere near where we need to be. In terms of the, the broader culture, I think that, again, for the, that because of the dynamics, the logic of extremism that I, that I discussed earlier, I think that the harder the activists push, the sooner this thing is going to come to a head. I think there's only so much of the public is willing to, to tolerate images of men with, you know, chemically induced lactation, letting babies suckle from their nipples, not to put too fine a point on it. So I think there's, I think there's definitely going to be a growing pushback. The schools has people up in arms. You have strong majorities of Americans in favor of getting gender ideology out of elementary school. You have a, a, a slimmer mi a majority, but still a majority of Americans in favor of getting it out of middle school. High school is a little bit more complicated. It depends what the issue is, depends what the demographics are. It's, it's a kind of a 50-50 issue, but there too, we've turned a corner for sure. Secret, so, secret gender transitions are only going to happen so long. For so long, there's going to be lawsuits to end that. There already are some lawsuits. Eventually, they're going to succeed. How could they not? 
I, I, I would say, you know, I don't want to be cliche here, but like guarded optimism is the appropriate response. Things are getting better, but very slowly. And it takes a lot of work. Okay. And uh, Leo Sapir is one of the main people that's out there doing this work and has, has shown a lot of integrity in, in being very evidence and data-based in, in his approach, which seems to be a very wise and important and prudent move on his part. He's a sort of Thank a you. complimentary figure at the Manhattan Institute to Chris Rufo, who drives the, who drives the, the politics and the, the partisan end of it has done a lot to to raise consciousness and just awareness of the kind of practices that are that 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 have been in place for a long time but have been only brought to light very recently in no small no small part through Rufo's efforts and and turned it into a an important issue among among republicans Although, although Ron DeSantis going all in on it, it, it's not looking like his path to electoral victory, alas, but it will be interesting to see how it all works out. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not the classroom theory. No I saw it happen. And then begin to Do you have a martyr complex? Let me tell you, we all Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Your task will not be an easy one. The road ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins.